And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. And welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. With it till 3 on this Friday as we start another weekend. Plenty to do coming up, including Game 4 of the NBA Finals. And why sports are cyclical. Also, this has been a bit of a bizarro NBA Finals. We'll get to that. Concerns about Clemson for the upcoming football season. Right, something's not like the others. Plus, here come the Atlanta Braves, a new powerhouse in college sports. I have some more thoughts on the golf world. Questions, some of the biggest questions in college football this year. We'll answer those coming up and a whole lot more throughout the afternoon. With you till 3 on this Friday, you can join the conversation throughout. 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show. 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. On Facebook at ESPN Charleston. Via email, studio at KirkmanBroadcasting.com. Or online at CharlestonSportsRadio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there, or you can even take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. With it till 3 on this Friday, Trent's on the steel wheels. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Luke, I'm doing beautiful on this Friday. It's a lovely day here in the low country. Game four tonight of the NBA Finals. Are you kidding me? Warriors down 2-1. This is going to be an absolutely phenomenal game. We'll see if they can bounce back. The weekend is here, Luke. Going to play some gaff this weekend. Looking forward to it. I'm feeling good on this beautiful Friday. Luke, glad to be here with you, sir. There you go. Happy to hear. Let me start with game four of the NBA Finals, which is tonight. I think the Warriors win and even up the series. Now, in honor of uh, Trent's love for the Dark Knight, there's a famous line that we've used before. But uh, the guy that plays Two-Face right, says he either die a hero or live long enough to become a villain. And let me try to apply that to the NBA Finals because I think things are uh, cyclical. You see it all the times in life. You grow up and you realize, wow, i become my parents. And we all do. You may not want to, but you're going to become just like your parent as well. And now you're on the opposite end of those battles. Right? As a kid, you used to complain with your parents about staying out late, having girls over, whatever it was that you used to complain about. Now, once you have kids, you become a parent, you're on the other side. And your kids are complaining to you about staying out late or having friends over or not doing their homework. And you're on the other side of these debates, and you realize what it was like for your parents back then, why they seem to be the jerks all the time, the tough position you used to put them in. Now you're in that position. You understand 
you see it from uh, a different perspective. Now you take the binoculars, you turn them around. You used to complain about uh, the, to your parents all the time. Now your kids are complaining to you about the same things. And it happens in sports all the time. Aaron Rodgers has become a lot like Brett Favre. The will he, won't he. The fans kind of turning on him in Green Bay at the end of his career. Even down to the rookie quarterback coming in and not being happy about it. It was Rodgers for Brett Favre, and then Jordan Love came in, and Aaron Rodgers was in the same position. The same position he probably disliked when he was on the other side of that position 15 years ago. So I saw a Facebook memory. I don't use Facebook except to look back at old memories. And around this time in 2015, I was posting about LeBron James's struggles in the fourth quarter of the NBA Finals against the Golden State Warriors that year. And I think there are a lot of similarities from 2015 in that NBA Finals to this year's NBA Finals. In 2015, LeBron James was 31, playing in his sixth NBA Finals in his 12th season in the league. This year, Steph Curry is 34, a little older, played in college, but he too playing in his sixth NBA Finals in his 13th season. In 2015, LeBron was facing a young Warriors team at the time. They were in their first NBA Finals led by a trio of young, talented players in Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green. This year, Steph Curry is facing a young Celtics team in their first NBA Finals, led by a young trio of Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart. Now in 2015, LeBron struggled in the fourth quarter of those games. His numbers were not good. He'd play really well for three quarters, fade in the fourth. This year, Steph Curry has really struggled in the fourth quarter. The numbers have not been good. He's been really good through the first three quarters. Think back to game one. Had like 25 points in the first quarter, 13 the rest of the way. Right, And in 2015, LeBron didn't have enough help around him. This year, I would say Curry, at least in the finals, hasn't had enough help around him. To me, Steph Curry has been the best player in this NBA Finals. But in the fourth quarter of the series, he has seven total points. Now, this excludes game two. He didn't have to play in the fourth quarter because they were winning by so much. But in two games, two NBA Finals games in the fourth quarter, two quarters combined, most important minutes, seven total points in those two quarters. 30% shooting. As many assists as turnovers. And a minus 30. The Warriors have been outscored by 30 points in the fourth quarter when Steph Curry is on the floor. That is not good. Now this is more of an indictment on the surrounding cast than it is Steph Curry. I'm not one of those Steph Curry haters coming on here and telling you he's not good enough, he never plays well in the finals. No, I think this has less to do with him and more to do with those around him. Right? He didn't have to play in the fourth quarter of Game 2 because they had such a large lead, but the Warriors were terrible. In the fourth quarter of Game 1 and Game 3, their two losses, much like LeBron in 2015. And it's because in both cases, they're both wearing down. They're asked to do too much because they're not getting enough help. And by the time the fourth quarter rolls around, they just don't have enough left. Especially for a guy like Steph Curry, who's an outside shooter, and so he relies so much on his legs and his lift, and by the end of the game, it's just not there anymore. That's why you practice free throws at the end of practice, because they want you to be tired when you step to that line. Just like in the fourth quarter of a game, when you're tired, they want to make sure you still have the strength in your legs or you're used to making your foul shots when you're exhausted. It's not easy. And for Steph Curry, it hasn't been easy. By the time they get to the fourth quarter, I'm sure he's drained, worn out. And he has to do so much 
He's all they have on offense. He has to play a huge role on defense. By the time you get to the fourth quarter, he's not knocking down those shots. The three-pointer suddenly seems even further away when you're exhausted in the fourth quarter. And if you think back to 2015, to continue this comparison, that was the year that Kyrie Irving got hurt. Kevin Love was already injured. Kyrie played just one game in the NBA Finals. Kevin Love did not play in the NBA Finals. And so when LeBron was playing in that Finals, his second leading scorer was Timothy Mozgov. The third leading scorer on that team was J.R. Smith in the NBA Finals. That's what LeBron was working with. And for the Warriors this year, they haven't had enough help around Steph Curry either. No one helped Curry in Game 1. That's why they lost. He scored almost 40 points. They lost by double digits. In Game 2, it was Jordan Poole stepping up, but no Klay Thompson. And then in Game 3, well, it was Klay Thompson stepping up, but no Jordan Poole. Right, right now, it's your pick your poison. But when Steph Curry's been on the floor in this NBA Finals, the Warriors have an offensive rating in the Finals that would be number one in the league this year. When Curry's been on the floor, they've played as the best offense in the league. Problem is, when Steph Curry has not been on the floor in the NBA Finals, the Warriors' offensive rating is the worst in the NBA in 50 years. Not the worst this year. Not the worst in the playoffs. The worst in half a century. If this series goes seven games... Even if the Warriors lose, Steph Curry should be the MVP regardless. Because think about that impact. When he's on the floor, number one offense in the league. When he's off the floor, worst offense in 50 years. I think Steph Curry's been the best player in the series. The problem is, after that, who would you then rank? I think Jalen Brown's been the second best player. I think he's been the best Celtic. If the Celtics were to win this series, as of now, Brown would be my MVP. Then maybe you put Jason Tatum third, maybe Marcus Smart after that. And in terms of impact... Maybe even Robert Williams would crack my top five. And if we did a top five list of player performances so far in the NBA Finals, I'm putting Steph Curry number one, and then that top five may be filled with all other Celtics. And that's the problem. Jason Tatum has not played great. He's supposed to be the Celtics star. He has not been the best player on their team, and yet they're still up 2-1. And for the Warriors, Steph Curry has played really well. I think he's been the best player in the series, and yet his team is down 2-1. When Steph Curry isn't perfect, when he's not on the floor, the Warriors are doomed. And that's the difference between these two. The Celtics' role players have been huge, and the Warriors' role players haven't helped enough. Now, I still think Golden State wins this series, but the Celtics have been, so far, the all-around better team. Going back to 2015, in that finals, LeBron led all scorers. He was great. He averaged 36 points per game in the NBA Finals. He was the best player on the floor. Problem was, if you then chose the rest of the top five players in that finals, at the time, they're all Golden State Warriors. And that's why the Warriors won that series in six games. Now, Steph Curry was on the other side. He was on the current Boston Celtics side of this series. Now, he's realizing what it's like to be LeBron James. Now, he's on the other side of it. Right back in 2015, he was like the kid. And looking up at his parents and wondering, why are they such jerks? They don't let me do anything. And now here in 2022, Steph Curry's on the other side. He's grown up. He's the adult. He's got kids. And they're arguing about the same thing, storming off to their room, talking about how much of a jerk you are. And you sit down on the couch and realize what it was like for your parents all those years ago trying to put up with you as a kid. Steph Curry's realizing what it was like on the other side for LeBron James trying to do it all on his own. Because Steph Curry has to do everything for Golden State. Meanwhile, Boston can rely on all sorts of guys. The Warriors are now 2-9 and nine in their last 11 NBA Finals games without Kevin Durant. 
They miss him. They could use him. They probably need him right now. And that's not an indictment on Steph Curry. It's an indictment on everybody else. Curry's doing his part. He's been the best player in the series. He's just not getting enough help. And just like LeBron James, Steph Curry has a gravitational pull. The defense pays so much attention to him. And it opens up other guys. And yet they still can't take advantage. But it also makes Steph Curry and LeBron James have to work twice as hard because they're facing so many double teams. You're running two defenders at them and saying, yeah, leave Looney open in the quarter. We're not worried about him. And so when you score 35 points as the focal part, the focal point of that offense, that makes it even more impressive. And you're working even harder. And then you have to go on the other end and play hard defense as well. With the season on the line, and now a bum ankle tonight for Curry. With all that said, I still think the Warriors win tonight. I think the Celtics are too inconsistent, and we have just one day in between games. Now, that may be bad news for Steph Curry's ankle, but it's also less time for Robert Williams to recover for the Boston Celtics. He's been playing hurt, and he hasn't been able to play a ton of minutes. He played his most minutes of the finals in Game 3, and he had the best plus-minus in the game in Game 3. Now, that was with a few days off. Now, it's a little bit of a quicker turnaround. Only one day off in between from Game 3 to Game 4 tonight. And so I don't know if you're going to get as much out of Williams tonight. And the Celtics, they killed the Warriors on the glass in Game 3. They killed them in the paint. They killed them on second-chance points. I don't know if they'll be as strong in those areas tonight. Williams may not have as big of an impact tonight. Plus, the Celtics just too inconsistent. They play one good game, one bad game. One good game, one bad game. And the Warriors, they're the veterans. And they have the season on the line tonight. And I think Draymond Green will play better. He'll be refocused. I think the Warriors play better, win tonight, and I still think they win the series. By the way, speaking of that 2015 NBA Finals, Golden State was also down 2-1 that year. They had lost game one at home. They were down 2-1, and they won game four on the road in Cleveland before winning the series. Similar situation here. Can they win game four in Boston tonight to even up the series and move forward? And the last comparison to 2015 is that Golden State, that was their first Finals appearance. And you saw all these young kids Clay Thompson and Draymond Green and Steph Curry. This was before they got Durant. And they went on to win that NBA Finals. And then that was the start of something special. And if the Celtics win this NBA Finals, that too could be the start of something special with all of these young guys. Life, sports, it's all cyclical. Uh, uh, Seven years ago, Steph Curry was on the other side. This is very much like 2015. LeBron James in his six NBA Finals against a young upstart Warriors team, and LeBron couldn't keep up. Steph Curry in his sixth NBA Finals against a young startup Boston Celtics team. We'll see if he can keep up. By the way, here was Draymond Green on his podcast yesterday following probably the worst performance of his playoff career. Here's what Draymond had to say. Tonight may have been one of the worst games of my career. I Honestly, I, I totally outsmarted myself. Um, and, and coming into the game, you know, you hear all the chattering, you hear all the noise, and but. I think for me, I just let too much noise get into my head about all the other stuff. And so in turn, I let that drag my intensity level down. I let it, um, you know, I'm going into the game like, all right, you know, I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get a referee's a chance to call a tech and blah, 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 blah. That was Draymond about his performance the other night. A lot of what I said on the show yesterday. I thought he got too wrapped up in all that other machismo stuff. I think he'll be much better tonight. I think he'll refocus. I think the Warriors win tonight. I think they'll be better. He'll be better. The Warriors will play better, and they'll even the series. The big question is Steph Curry's health, of course. 
Here was Steph Curry at his press conference yesterday talking about his ankle and his status for game four tonight. Uh, I'm going to play. That's all, I, that's, all I, that's all I know right now. What have the past 12 hours been like for you just in terms of recovery treatment for your foot? Uh, about 10 and a half hours of sleep. A couple of dunks in the ice bucket, and that's about it for now. And then take advantage of the day and tomorrow to get completely ready for the game. Um, get as much recovery and healing as possible. And uh, understand how important game four is. And I'm excited about the opportunity. Steph Curry yesterday. He'll be out there tonight. What version of Steph will we get? That's the big question. Now they're saying, right, he doesn't even need an MRI. You know he wouldn't get an MRI because he doesn't want to know. Ignorance is bliss. It's the NBA Finals. He doesn't want to be told something or have the doctor say, wait, hold on, this is worse than we thought. You can't go out there. So I don't look too much into that. We'll see what type of version we get out of Steph Curry tonight. But I'll tell you what, he still has the highest point total in Las Vegas for tonight's game. So either Vegas expects a typical Steph Curry performance or they expect a lot of suckers like me who are going to bet on the over for Steph Curry and they're going to cash in tonight when he's not 100%. I think Curry will be good enough. I think the Warriors' supporting cast will help out. I think the Celtics won't play as well as Game 3, and the Warriors even the series. Let me get to this real quick. I think this NBA Finals has been a little bit of a bizarro series in three ways. Number one, defense is actually winning. Now, we've been sold uh, that cliche for years, and it used to be true. It hasn't been true of late. Offense has been beating defense, really in all sports. But this year, we have a matchup between the two top defensive teams in the NBA Finals, based off a of defensive rating, for the first time since 1996, when it was Jordan and the Bulls against Gary Payton and, the, at the time, Seattle Supersonics. It's been a while since we've had, actually, the two best defensive teams match up in the finals. Usually doesn't happen. This year, however, defense is winning, and the Celtics right now lead the series. They were the best defensive team in the league this year, and they've done a really good job on Golden State. The number two reason why I say that is because the best player may not win. We've always been told, right, just have the star. And if you have a star player, you'll win championships. Steph Curry's been the best player in this series, and yet the Celtics are still up 2-1. Their star, Jason Tatum, hasn't been great. Jalen Brown's been better. It's been more about the supporting cast. Al Horford's 26 points in Game 1. Grant Williams having the best plus-minus. It's not about Steph Curry or the big names. And if you look back, that doesn't happen all that often. Usually, the best player wins the championship. That's why Michael Jordan went 6-for-6 six six in the 90s. That's why Kobe Bryant... Won all sorts of championships. Even go back to Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. Right, Go back to Magic in the early 80s when he had to step in and play center, and they beat the Sixers. He was playing center, and he dropped a triple-double. It didn't matter. He was the best player on the floor. They were still going to win, no matter where he's playing on the court. Right, We could go on and on about all the teams that won with their star player. The last team to win a championship without a top-three player in the league at the time may have been the Dallas Mavericks in 2011. Now, Dirk Nowitzki is a Hall of Famer. But I don't think he was top three. And if you go back and you look, most teams that win a championship have a top three, maybe at least a top five player in the league at the time. And if you think back to 2011, right, it was Dirk and the Mavericks beating Miami with all of their star power. This Warriors team does not have the same star power because they're all a little bit older and a little bit more beat up, but somewhat similar in the sense that that Mavericks team, you look back and you wonder, like, how did that Mavericks team, even with Dirk, beat all that talent on Miami? It's not the perfect comparison, but we could look back at this series and look at the Celtics and see a team beat their opponent that had maybe more star power, at least at one time. I think Dirk's better than Jason Tatum, but that's probably the last time you go back to find a champion that didn't have truly like a top three player in the sport at the time. 
maybe the 2006 Heat with Dwayne Wade at the time. Obviously a great player at, at that in, 20, in 2006. Was he top three? I don't know. 2004 Pistons, of course. But most teams, you go back, you either had a Kobe, even had a Giannis, you had a Jordan, you had a Magic, you had a Bird. You usually had one of the very best, if not the best player in the league winning the championship. And the third reason why this has been a bit of a bizarro NBA Finals is because there's a big guy having a big impact. Right? Robert Williams may be the most impactful player in the series. Again, he has the best plus-minus. In Game 3 alone, the Celtics outscored the Warriors by 21 points when he was on the court. They got outscored by 5 points when he was off the court. That is a huge difference. That's a 26-point swing for Robert Williams. He has missed one shot the entire series. The Celtics have dominated inside on the offensive glass, second-chance points, points in the paint. He's helped out defensively, keeping the Warriors out of the paint and getting easy buckets. You know, the Golden State Warriors, Wiseman's been injured this year, so that hasn't helped them. But they had a chance to potentially go out and add a big guy at the trade deadline. And their GM, Bob Myers, at the time said, no, we don't think we need to because big guys, right, they're not what they once were. They don't have the impact. We don't need to go out and add a big guy. We're fine with what we have, a bunch of perimeter shooters. That's what wins today. And it has been. But here we are in the NBA Finals, and what's been the big difference between these two teams? I think it's the size for the Celtics. Three things that I thought were no longer the case and, quite frankly, have not been the case the last few years in the NBA. Defense winning, the best player not necessarily winning, and a big guy having a big impact. It's a little bit of a bizarro NBA Finals this year. Now I think the key moving forward is that number three player on each team. For Golden State, Steph Curry, if healthy, is going to play well. And then you're probably going to get one of Jordan Poole or Clay Thompson. Can you get both? Or can you get one of those guys and a Wiggins to step up? The Warriors need that third piece to be successful. And for Boston, their third piece may be the most important as well. That's Marcus Smart. Right? He's their number three. He needs to play well for them to continue to have success. Jalen Brown's been the best player for the Celtics. Tatum's a little up and down. Can Marcus Smart chip in as well? I don't know if you can count on a Horford, but I think it comes down to that third option for both these teams moving forward. That could be the overused X factor the rest of the way in the NBA Finals. To reiterate, I think the Warriors do win tonight, even up the series. And if they do, I think they're still the favorite to win this NBA Finals overall. When we come back, a concern for Clemson this fall. Why they're different than the other favorites. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Coming up, my concern for Clemson this fall. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Don't forget, next Thursday you can go catch up with the head basketball coach and football coach of the Gamecocks, Lamont Paris and Shane Beamer. Join the Gamecock Club for the Charleston County Welcome Home Tour for Gamecock athletic updates, a Q&A session, autographs, and more. Next Thursday, June 16th, the Porter Room at Holy City Brewing Company. Doors open at 6 p.m., Tickets are $40 for adults, $15 for kids 12 and under, and tickets include food provided by Kickin' Chicken with a cash bar available. Next Thursday, June, 20, uh, June 16th, the next Thursday, at the Porter Room at Holy City Brewing Company. Go say hello to Lamont Paris and Shane Beamer and get the lowdown for Gamecock Athletics. 
Quarterbacks are almost the be-all, end-all in football. And that's why Gamecock fans are very excited about Spencer Rattler this year. If you look at odds to win the Super Bowl in the NFL, here are the favorites, the quarterbacks of the favorite teams in order. Josh Allen, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, Matt Stafford, Aaron Rodgers, Justin Herbert. Not bad. Then you get to a Jimmy Garoppolo, but then Russell Wilson, Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson, Lamar Jackson, Joe Burrow, all pretty good quarterbacks. If you go to the worst Super Bowl odds this year, their quarterbacks are Davis Mills, Marcus Mariota, Zach Wilson, Drew Locke, Jared Goff. And then you get to Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and Sam Darnold and Daniel Jones and Mitch Trubisky. These are all in order. And then even a Carson Wentz. Not hard to figure out why certain teams are favored more than others to try to win the Super Bowl this year. The best quarterbacks are all on the teams with the best odds, and the worst quarterbacks are on the teams that have the worst odds. College football is not very different. Last year's national title game was Bryce Young against Stetson Bennett. Bryce Young was second in the country last year in QBR. Surprisingly, Stetson Bennett was third. The other playoff quarterbacks last year, Michigan's quarterback had the second-best QBR in the Big Ten, and Desmond Ritter had the best QBR amongst group of five quarterbacks. Not bad. The year prior, we had Mac Jones and Justin Fields in the national title game. They were 1-2 and two in the country in QBR. Trevor Lawrence was also in that playoff, number one in the ACC. Ian Buck was in that playoff, number one for independence. All four quarterbacks were top ten in QBR. Go back the year prior, the top four quarterbacks in the uh, playoff that year in college football were all top five in QBR, all number one in their conference. The year before that, all four playoff quarterbacks were number one in their conference in QBR, and the top two quarterbacks in the country that year, Kyler Murray and Tua, both made the playoff. Point being, last four years in college football, that's the criteria. Every playoff quarterback, last four years in college football, finished the year top 12 in QBR. So we can say they were a top 12 quarterback in the country. Additionally, 15 of those 16 quarterbacks were also number one in their conference in QBR. So that's the criteria. Be the top quarterback in your conference in order to win your conference and be a top 12 quarterback in the country in order to then get your team to the playoff. So then I look at Clemson. Does Clemson have that quarterback this year? I was looking at odds last night, as one's prone to do in June, and uh, you look at the conference favorites, and you have Alabama, Ohio State, USC, Clemson, and then Oklahoma's favored just slightly ahead of Texas in the Big 12. Those are the favorites to win their conferences. Ohio State is the favorite in the Big 10. They clearly have the best quarterback in the conference. Alabama is the clear favorite in the SEC. They clearly have the best quarterback in the conference. Georgia just won the national championship. Alabama has better odds this year. Why? Because regardless of what happened in the national title game, Alabama has the better quarterback. Bryce Young compared to Stetson Bennett, so Alabama's favored to win the conference because that better quarterback will win out over the course of a season. USC is believed to have the best quarterback in their conference now at Caleb Williams. They're the clear favorite. I would also tell you, let me continue this Utah hype, their quarterback returning from last year, don't sleep on him or Utah. But there's a reason why USC's expected to win the conference. Will they? We'll find out. But why are they expected to? Because when you look on paper, they have the best quarterback in the conference. And those are the three best quarterbacks considered in college football this year. Their three teams have big odds to win their conferences. Not a coincidence. Then you get to the Big 12. This is a little bit of an outlier. 
right? Oklahoma is favored to win the conference. They brought in Dylan Gabriel, which was a good get for them at the quarterback position. But Texas is right behind them. It's not a big difference. In fact, it would be Oklahoma's 8-4, to four, uh, or I have that reversed. Texas is 8-4, to four, if you were to extrapolate it, and Oklahoma's 7-4 to four in terms of the odds. 7-4 to four odds, 8 to four. So it's such a, a slight difference between those two. And if you go back to last year, Texas won five games. So Texas won five games last year, had their worst season in decades. Now they're almost the favorite to win the Big 12. Why? What happened this offseason? Same coaching staff. Same star running back. Oh, that's right. Quinn Ewers transferred there. Star quarterback. And now suddenly Texas goes from five wins last year to, hey, they may win the Big 12 this year. It's always about the quarterback. So then we get to the ACC. Clemson is a heavy favorite. They're minus 140 to win the ACC. And then Pittsburgh second at plus, I don't know, a couple of hundred. And then third, I think, is Miami, and they're up around like plus 1,000. There is a huge gap. Clemson is the clear favorite. Now, maybe this speaks more to how bad the ACC's expected to be this year. But my question is, you look at these other conferences, you look at what's winning in college football, you look at who's making it to the playoff in the NFL and college football, what's required of the best teams in the country. Does Clemson have that? Do they have one of those quarterbacks? Because I don't think so. In fact, I don't think he's even top three in his own conference. Now, you can tell me, well, Clemson, they have the best coach in the conference. They'll have the best defense in the conference. And those things could be true. But I would counter with the question of, didn't they also have those things last year and not win the conference while playing with the same quarterback a year ago who was the biggest issue for Clemson? And that's not even to mention the fact that they lost two talented coordinators that have been there for a long time from last year to this year. Consider this. People may forget this unless you're a Clemson fan because they you know, seem to have underachieved last year. They allowed the second fewest points in the country last year. They had the second-best defense in the country. Were they in the ACC title game? You know who was in the ACC title game? Pittsburgh and Wake Forest. Pittsburgh was 42nd in points allowed. Wake Forest was 88th. And in the ACC title game, we had 66 points scored between the two. It wasn't really about defense. Instead, it was about quarterbacks. Kenny Pickett and Sam Hartman were the best quarterbacks in the ACC, and they were in the ACC championship. If you go back and you look, 11 of the last 12 years in the ACC, the team that won the conference, their quarterback was top two in the conference in QBR. 11 of the last 12 years. The one exception was Clemson when they won the ACC, what, about five years ago with Kelly Bryant. He was fourth in the conference that year in QBR. Otherwise, outside of that one year, the last 11 conference champions had a top two quarterback in the conference. So my question being, Right, If we know that in order to win that conference, you probably need to have a top two quarterback. To make a playoff, you probably need to have a top 12 quarterback in the country. Does DJ check either box for Clemson? Could Cade Klubnick, as a true freshman, come in like a Trevor Lawrence and check either box? That may be hard to rely on. And when I look at the ACC, I think NC State has a better quarterback. I think Miami has a better quarterback. I think Louisville has a better quarterback. I think Wake Forest has a better quarterback. I think Boston College has a better quarterback. I think maybe even Virginia could have a better quarterback. I'm not as high on Brennan Armstrong as others, but some people think he may be a, a top 10 quarterback in the country this year. That's what, one, two, three, four, five, six teams I listed off, almost half the conference that I would take ahead of DJ or Clemson's quarterback situation right now. And consider the fact that regardless of how good your defense is, 
History tells us you probably need a top two quarterback. Last year, DJ was 13th in the ACC. So the question becomes, because I know he's lost some weight this offseason, he's working on his mechanics, can he pass 11 different quarterbacks in that conference here in one offseason? I don't think so. I don't have the faith that he will. And I think instead the ACC will have some sneaky good quarterbacks this year. This is why I like NC State and Miami so much this year. Those may be the two best quarterbacks in the conference by year's end. They may have the two best quarterbacks. Plus, NC State had the second-best defense behind Clemson, so they got a little bit of both. They have an experienced coaching staff, continuity, a lot of guys coming back. And Miami, they were second in the Coastal last year, so not too far off. Plus, now they upgraded their head coach. Their quarterback will be in his second year as a starter. He was a redshirt freshman last year, played pretty well. I think he'll be better this year. I think there's more to like about NC State and Miami. So it's like those old SAT questions, or even they used to do it on Sesame Street, like, You know, one of these things does not belong. What is unlike the other? When I look at the favorites throughout college football, they all have one thing in common outside of Clemson, quarterback play. Now, again, you could sell me on Clemson while they have a great coach and they have a great defense. They will. But I'd also say they had those things last year, and it wasn't good enough to make it to the ACC title game. Why will that be the difference this year? Even though Georgia won with a historically good defense, don't forget that Stetson Bennett was third in the country in QBR. And in order to be a playoff team in recent history, you need a top-12 quarterback. And in order to win your conference, you need a top-2 quarterback. So that becomes the question. I was looking at the odds because I'm trying to gain an edge. And I'm looking at the ACC thinking, man, I think there's some value here to bet on one of these other teams with very big plus odds. Whichever one you think could have the best quarterback in the conference this year because I don't think it's going to be Clemson. And that's my biggest concern for them. Ohio State, Alabama, even USC, it's easy to see why they're favored. Clemson. You could sell me on coaching a defense. I don't think that's the biggest thing anymore. I think it just simply comes down to quarterbacks. That's what we're seeing in football. Coming up, this leads me to the most impactful quarterbacks this year. Which quarterback in each conference will be the most impactful? Have the biggest impact on what happens in their conference. We'll get to that coming up. It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Who will be the most impactful quarterbacks in the college football this year? We'll get to that here in the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Spent last segment talking about my concerns for Clemson and specifically their quarterback, DJ. So with that said, I think you could make a case that he'll be the most impactful quarterback in the ACC because Clemson is the heavy favorite to win the conference. But to me... You have to qualify that with if DJ plays well enough. If he doesn't, regardless of their defense, their run game, coaching staff, everything else, I still believe, I think George was the outlier last year, and Stetson Bennett, by the way, performed as a top three quarterback in the country. I still believe you need a top quarterback, and you win with offense more than defense. 
And I think the ACC showed that last year. Clemson are the second-best defense in the country. Where did it get them? Not far enough. Meanwhile, Kenny Pickett, Sam Hartman, right? Wake Forest, their defense was terrible. They scored a bunch of points. They made it to the conference championship. Kenny Pickett, best quarterback in his draft class in that conference. They won the conference as a bit of a surprise. So I think DJ is the most, will be the most impactful quarterback, good or bad, in the ACC. If he plays well, like he did two years ago, filling in for Trevor Lawrence, then we're talking about Clemson as a playoff team. And if he plays well with that defense, and then you're talking about potentially a championship team once again, a national championship team. If he doesn't play well and say they have to make some sort of move to Kate Klubnik, right, then that certainly opens the door for these other teams. If Leary plays well at NC State, Van Dyke at Miami, if they have big-time years, right, that door will be open for somebody else to, once again, like last year, win the ACC. See, that's what happened. When the quarterback play wasn't good enough at Clemson a year ago, it opened the door for others. And who burst through? Pittsburgh and Wake Forest because their quarterbacks were good enough to go win the ACC or at least compete for a chance. Similar this year. So I think the linchpin to the ACC is, in fact, DJ. Because if he plays well, it's, it's almost like we always talk about with quarterbacks, like it's his job to, to lose. Well, theoretically, based off of the odds, the belief, that's DJ's conference to lose as well. Clemson's a favorite despite what happened last year. But if he doesn't play well enough, I don't care about the defense. I don't think they'll be good enough to win the ACC. And another quarterback will step up, win the conference, so I think it hinges on him. When I look at the other conferences, I look at the transfer quarterbacks. It's probably the low-hanging fruit, but I do think it's the proper answer. If we were to say, right, go conference by conference, who's going to be the most impactful quarterback in each conference, I look at transfers. In the Pac-12, I think it's Caleb Williams going to USC. USC won four games last year. Now they're the favorites to win the conference. I will continue to say I think Utah's better. But if Caleb Williams has a big-time year, and is a top-three quarterback in the country, competing for the Heisman like many believe, then, yeah, maybe USC will be the best team out there. But it depends on Caleb Williams. The fact that we're looking at USC potentially going from four wins to winning a conference, it'd be the largest turnaround in one year for a college football team since Hawaii in the 90s, when Hawaii went, I think it was winless, and then came back and won uh, like 10 games the next year. We haven't seen something like that in over 20 years, what USC is expected to do, winning just four games last year and potentially winning the conference this year. So, yeah, I would say Caleb Williams in the Pac-12. And if he doesn't play as well as what you saw at times in Oklahoma, because he's still kind of, you know, he's still a little green, still a little raw. He came in last year, wasn't the starter the whole year. There'll be more tape out on him. And as the season went along, he, he came out and he really boomed when he first took the field, replacing Spencer Rattler. And then, you know, maybe wasn't as strong as things went on. Uh, he's a very talented quarterback that should have a good year, but now working with a lot of different pieces, different conference. We'll see if there's some sort of uh, learning curve. But I think he holds the keys to the Pac-12. If he plays as well as people believe, yeah, they probably will win the conference. If not, I think it opens the door for a Utah. I think UCLA will be better this year. Uh, Keep an eye on an Oregon, as always. In the Big 12, I would say Quinn Ewers at Texas. I referenced this last segment, but the fact that Texas had their worst year in decades, they were 5-7 and last year, now this year, they're just about the favorite to win the conference. Why? Because Quinn Ewers transferred in. And he has high expectations. Remember, he's the guy that Ohio State reportedly paid a million dollars just to get him on campus early, and he never took a snap there, and now he's gone, and they paid him anyways. And if he's a star enough, a big enough name to demand that much money coming out of high school, you know why, because the belief is he's going to be very good. We'll see if he is with Steve Sarkeesian in Texas. And if he is, yeah, then Texas may come back and win that conference. If not, the Big 12 is wide open. 
Baylor, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. Obviously now Texas you throw in. Which one of those teams is going to win the conference? The biggest question may be that may, that may hang or hinge on how well Quinn Ewers plays. If he plays as well as advertised, it'll be Texas Conference. If not, one of those other teams will have a chance. In the SEC, uh, this may sound like pandering, right? because I already told you DJ is going to be the most impactful quarterback in the ACC. In the SEC, it's hard to choose. I don't know. Bryce Young is going to be really good, and Alabama will be really good. Stetson Bennett, we know what Stetson Bennett is. He's not the best quarterback in the conference, but good enough to go win a national championship. Then you look at some of these other quarterbacks. You could say, like, maybe an Anthony Richardson at Florida. Um, I don't know. Maybe, a K, you know, K.J. Jefferson, we already know what he is. Hayden Hooker, we already know what he is at Tennessee. Who's going to have the largest impact on the conference this year? I think the SEC is just uh, a little status. that We know what all these guys are. Maybe you say Will Levis, but the, my point being that even if Will Levis plays as well as a, a first-round draft pick, do we think that makes the difference, that now Kentucky is going to be better than Georgia this year and win the division? If Anthony Richardson's a star at Florida, are they ready to already go win that division instead of Georgia? I don't think so. I think it's clearly Georgia, Alabama, and then everyone else behind them. So now you're battling for the second spot in the East. And it's why I go back to Spencer Rattler. Because Rattler's the most talented quarterback South Carolina has ever had. People believe he could be a top-five quarterback this year. I don't think South Carolina, even if Spencer Rattler plays that well, I don't think South Carolina could reach the SEC title game. But in terms of having the biggest impact, he could in the sense that South Carolina may take the biggest step forward. He may have the biggest impact in terms of changing a program as much as he could. Maybe it'll be Richardson. Maybe it'll be somebody else in that conference that they take a big leap this year. Maybe Will Rogers coming back at Mississippi State. They're ready to take a big step. I don't know. But I think you can make a pretty good case that Spencer Rattler coming in, the excitement around South Carolina, the expectations, what they potentially could achieve this year, he could have the largest impact in the SEC. It won't be enough to win the conference, but it will still be the largest impact um, in the conference. Because Bry- Bryce Young's Bryce Young. He's going to be fine. Alabama's going to win their division. Sets and Bennett, Sets and Bennett. Right? We, we already know what to expect. But amongst the questions in the SEC, Rattler could have the biggest answer. And then lastly, the Big Ten. This was the toughest conference for me to pick. I think you can make a case for maybe like an Aiden O'Connell at Purdue. I think Purdue's a little bit of a sleeper in the Big Ten, and O'Connell may be the second-best quarterback in the conference behind C.J. Stroud, so keep an eye on Purdue. But I would say I'm going to go a little off the grid and say the quarterback that could have the most impact in the Big Ten is Spencer uh, Petrus at Iowa. And the reason why is because Iowa has probably the toughest schedule in the conference, and they play both Michigan and Ohio State, who are believed to be the two best teams in the conference. And so why I think he could have the biggest impact is because if he plays really well this year, I don't know, maybe Iowa pulls up, uh, pulls off a surprise or two, and they just impact the conference. And if they're going to win some of these tough games and have an impact on the Big Ten winner, it's going to take, I imagine, good quarterback play. So I'll say the Iowa quarterback, Spencer uh, Petrus, who's not one of the best quarterbacks in the conference, but could have one of the bigger impacts if Iowa maybe pulls a few upsets along the way and disrupts the Big Ten. The quarterbacks in each Power Five conference that I think could have the largest impact on their conference this year in college football. We'll wrap up Hour 1 next. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio.
Wrapping up hour one of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. You can always join the conversation on the phones, 843-721-9500 to give us a call. Before we go here at the top of the hour, let's get right to it. Billy's with us. Billy, what's going on? How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Hey, I got a football question and a basketball question. Um, as far as the football question goes, South Carolina this year, um, South Carolina goes 6-6 six and six again this year because the schedule hasn't really changed much from last year. Would you consider that a disappointing season as far as this Rattler, or how many games do you think he would have to get under his belt for it to be considered a good year? Uh, yeah, I think since if we removed the bowl last year, they went 6-6 six and six in the regular season, I think you have to do at least better than that because you really upgrade. This is a big upgrade to me at the quarterback position. Right. right? So you have to do at least better than last year, even if it's only by one game. You go 7-5 and five this year, I view that as a success. 6-6 six and six or anything below that, I view as a, a failure. You've got to be at least better than last year now that you have Spencer mm-hmm. Rattler. Yeah, really. Um, the NBA question I got to is, say the Warriors lose tonight and we know Seth's hurt, how much of an excuse do you think they will use that as far as he wasn't 100% and if Boston were to go ahead and win the series because of that, how much of an excuse do you think we would have to hear about that? And I'll hang up and listen later. Appreciate it, Billy. That's a good question. Uh, people are going to say it, no doubt. But I would say it wouldn't be fair because we've seen when Curry has been healthy through these first three games, Boston has looked like the better team. Now, it may sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth because I still think the Warriors win the series. I picked them from the beginning, and I'm sticking with them so far. If they lose tonight, then, yeah, probably series over. But I think they win tonight. But I can also acknowledge at the same time, while I still think Golden State has their best basketball in front of them, that Boston's looked like the better team. So no doubt people will point to that because we always do, especially Warriors fans. I mean, Warriors fans were complaining about Celtics fans the other night. What are we doing here? Warriors players were complaining about the Celtics fans. So people will look for any excuse they can. So absolutely, if Curry's not 100%, that's what you'll hear about from a lot of people. It could have been different if Curry was was fully healthy. But I think we've already seen enough in this series that if the Celtics do go on to win, like at this point, it's not a surprise. If the Celtics win this series in six games, whether Curry's healthy or not, I wouldn't be all that surprised. I still think the Warriors win, but I've been impressed with Boston. I think they've looked like the better all-around team so far this series. I also say the interesting thing about the Warriors, credit to them. Most people, you can point to the victories and make those excuses. Or point to the losses, make the excuses. Right? Like the Giants winning the Super Bowl with the David Tyree catch. You say, oh, they got lucky. You can't really say that about a lot of the Warriors' victories, but you can say it about their losses. When they lost their two finals, Draymond Green got suspended, Andrew Bogut got hurt, and last time everybody got hurt against the Raptors. They very easily could be 6-0 or 5-0 right now. Hour two next. WTMZ 98.9 FM, WTMZ 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, we'll answer some of the bigger questions in college football this year. 
Plus, I got another thought on the golf world with the Live Golf Tour continuing. The Braves, look out for the Atlanta Braves. Storming back these days. Plus, yesterday was, uh, I missed yesterday, was an anniversary of something in baseball. I totally missed it. So we'll have to circle back to that later on. we got plenty more to do throughout the afternoon here on this Friday. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And uh, you can always get in touch with the show online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page and leave a comment for the show there. You can always get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. Text the show 843-608-1734. Or give us a call 843-721-9500. I do want to circle back for just a moment on uh, the call from Billy to wrap up last hour because I thought he asked two good questions. When it comes to the Gamecocks, they won six games in the regular season last year. Then you bring in Spencer Rattler. I think you have to do better than at least six, even if it's just seven. And my expectation for the Gamecocks this year would be a, a seven and five regular season. But it's a lot like uh, the Broncos in the NFL. Right? When you bring in Russell Wilson, if they won as many games as they did last year, yeah, that would be a failure. And Spencer Rattler may not be a Russell Wilson at the NFL level, but just in terms of South Carolina, again, he's the most talented. He's the highest-rated recruit they've ever had at that position, ever. And so you go from last year where they were the only team in the country to start four different guys, I think it was, or maybe win a game with whatever that stat was, about four different quarterbacks, and now you go to Spencer Rattler. It's kind of similar to going from Drew Locke to Russell Wilson. And if the Broncos have the same record, right, as a year ago, yeah, that's not good enough when you make that upgrade. With that comes higher expectations. So for this year, for South Carolina, for expectations, I think the minimum needs to be seven wins. I think you have to be at least better. Not even, not lateral. You can't have the same record. Spencer Rattler's better than what you had at the quarterback position a year ago. you got to win at least one more game. There's got to be some sort of improvement because you improved the roster. So even if it's just one win, doesn't seem like much, but you got to be better this year by something. Seven and five is the minimum for South Carolina this year. And then in regards to the Warriors, we were up against it. I don't know if I illustrated my point well enough. But I think it's a fair question about Steph Curry and the injury. What I find interesting about Golden State is I think the better example of what I was trying to get at would be the New England Patriots, where the Patriots you could point to some of their Super Bowl wins and talk about luck. In fact, really, because they play so many close games, you could make, if you want to, an excuse about all their wins. If you're a Panthers fan, you probably remember John Casey kicking the kickoff out of bounds on that final drive. Patriots take over at the 40, and then they get into field goal range to win the game. What are you doing? Um, You could go back to their first Super Bowl they won and point to the game against the Raiders with the tuck rule. You could go to the Seahawks Super Bowl when Russell Wilson throws the interception at the goal line. You go to the Falcons Super Bowl. Sorry, Falcons fans. When you're wondering, what is Kyle Shanahan doing with this play calling? You could point to a lot of the victories for New England and say, like, well, they got If this break, and it may not be true, it's something us sports fans say to make ourselves uh, feel better about it. Right? Well, the Patriots, yeah, they're the greatest dynasty, but they're very lucky. In fact, that's what Rob Parker calls Tom Brady the, the low luckiest of all time. With Golden State, you can't really say that. The one maybe uh, when I, the, the championship we were talking about last hour, 2015, when you go up against um, LeBron James and Kevin Love's injured and Kyrie Irving plays only one game. And that was the first time the Warriors won a championship. That's probably the one. But otherwise, the Warriors are the opposite of a lot of champions where you point to their losses and say, actually, this dynasty was unlucky. Because when they lost to the Cavs, blowing that 3-1 lead, well, for one, they blew a 3-1 lead. How often does that happen? 
That's the only time it's happened in the finals. And number two, Draymond Green missed game five, which was the game that ended up swinging the series, and Andrew Bogut got injured, which also had a huge impact. When they lost to the Raptors three years ago, everybody on the team got injured. They were a shell of themselves, and those were the two times they lost in the finals. And now, if they lose this finals and Steph Curry, let's say he's clearly not 100% tonight or moving forward, Warriors fans could point to that too and say, hey, we made it to six finals. We went three and three, but in all three losses, right, we had ba- if one thing went another way, we had bad luck. We could have won all six. And I think that's what's unique or interesting about Golden State. Most times with these champions, you point to how lucky they were in winning. For Golden State, despite all their winning, you could also say they've actually been more on the unlucky side at times through their dynasty run. The Bulls would probably be another one. I'm trying to think back to the Bulls. Like even the Chicago Bulls, there was never really a situation. There was never a game seven, so that was part of the reason. The series were pretty decisive. You can never really point to Jordan getting lucky. Maybe the one time would be against, uh, was it the Trailblazers? The Trailblazers led by 15 in the fourth quarter. I, I wouldn't consider that luck. But for the Jordan haters, you could say, you know, how did the Blazers blow a 15-point lead in the fourth quarter? Uh, that was, I think, game six. The Bulls ended up going on to win. Could have forced a game seven. I don't know. There's really not a lot you could say in the Jordan. He pushed off of Byron Russell. There's really not a lot you could say about the Bulls either, where with all their winning, you could write it off just to being lucky. And that's the, that's the sign of a really – they don't need breaks to win. They're just winning because they're so good. Jordan didn't catch a lot of breaks or didn't need to catch a lot of breaks. They were just talented. The Warriors, same idea. Patriots, I think the same thing, but you have plenty of Patriot haters that make these excuses. They got lucky against the Rams. And, oh, Donovan McNabb was throwing up on the sideline when they beat the Eagles, and T.O. had a broken leg, and the Panthers kicked it out, kicked it off out of bounds, and – Russell Wilson, what were they doing throwing at the goal line? We can make all sorts of excuses for why the Patriots have so many Super Bowls. Anyways. The uh, USFL is winding down their first season. We have playoff games coming up soon. There's big news announced about those playoff games. Trent, let me ask you, have you watched... How many minutes of the USFL have you watched this year? Um, Luke... Ballpark in my USFL watching, I'd probably say a maximum of two and a half minutes. I, I would put it up there with two and a half. Yeah, I wow, you know good. I watch the clips on Twitter. I'll see you know some good plays made by some young rising stars trying to get to the NFL. But we've talked about it before, Luke. You know, watching very bad football is difficult to do, especially for a full game. So I haven't watched really any of the live broadcasts. But if you add up all the clips I've watched, it's probably been a couple minutes. I probably uh, I was paying attention the first probably week or two. If you total it up, maybe I got like one full game. Okay, I was checking in and out. Yeah, I just haven't really been into it either. A little bit more than you, I guess, but not by much. And I've heard very little. Like at least people were excited, and sports talk show hosts were kind of shoehorning like the old XFL, the AF. I haven't heard anything about USFL at all. Um, but they have the playoff coming up. Here we go. Big news about the playoff. They're taking it out of Birmingham. They played the whole season there. They're going to go to Canton and play at the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame, the playoff. Other big news, I thought it was big news, but I don't know if it is big news. Trace Adkins is supposed to be performing. (laughs) Are you uh, familiar with Trace Adkins' music? The country singer? Yes, Yes, I am. I've heard a couple of his songs. He's a a good artist. You know, he's a middle-of-the-road type country singer. I wouldn't put him up there with the stars, you know, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame or anything like that, but he's uh, he's a good country singer. Yeah, so that's the point. I thought, I'm not a big country guy. This seems like a big, I know his name. And then I was looking up his tour schedule this year. 
And uh, this is where maybe Trey Zakis isn't as big of a star as I thought. Maybe the USFL isn't getting as big of a name as I thought they were. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's tough. It's tough. When you look at his uh, – you just got to go on Spotify and look at the plays. If, uh, uh-huh. if the plays are not, uh, I would say, above at least one song, about $100 million, then uh, you kind of know where you stand as far as uh, the hierarchy of uh, artists go. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what Atkins' numbers are. Well, I mean, I can pull them. I can pull them up here real quick. Sure, pull them up. But first, give me a little, uh, give me a little mood music because let's run through this tour that Trace Atkins has this summer, and then you check the numbers and let's see what we're working with here, because this tour does not really inspire me. This is the USFL's big draw to get Trace Atkins playing at the playoffs. They're selling this, right? We're going to be in Canton. We got the playoffs, and we got Trace Atkins performing. So I looked at the tour. For one, Trace Atkins is performing almost every night. The guy may be, for lack of a better term, a little desperate. He's performing five days a week. This guy's getting around. Right? If you look at, like, Dave Matthews was just here. Usually they play, nowadays, they become big enough stars. They only play, like, on the weekends. They take the week off. They travel. They'll play two shows on a weekend in a new city. Go to the next weekend. Trace Atkins is playing everywhere. Trent, I want to quiz you. Here we go. And now, again, in Trent's defense, I don't know most of these places. He's performing tonight in some town called St. Ignace. Any idea what state that's in? Ooh, St. Ignace? Uh, no, but I would say, you know, Luke, uh, let's throw it out on a limb here. Uh, you said they're going to be in Canton, what, this coming next uh, weekend? I think it's I think it's a week from now. A week from Within now. Within the next two weeks, I don't know. I, I would say, uh, I'd say Rhode Island. Is he performing in Rhode Island? St. Ignace is Michigan. Michigan. Okay. Well, there you go. He's playing at the uh, Hewitton Shores Outdoor. (laughs) That's what it's named. This town has fewer than 3,000 people. Wow. So you know they're going to come out in droves. (laughs) The whole town's going to be (laughs) there, and they still won't sell out the place. That's where he's performing tonight. Trace Atkins, I thought, was a big name. From there, he goes tomorrow, and he plays at the Ho-Chunk Gaming Dells in Baraboo. Where is Baraboo? Can I say Michigan uh, as well? Is he kind of doing a Michigan thing right now? Or it's a different state. Uh, let's go Ohio. Maybe Ohio. He heads to then Baraboo, Wisconsin. Oh, jeez. Elsewhere on this uh, set list, uh, tour date, I should say. Mayetta. He plays at the Prairie Band Casino and Resort in Mayetta. This is later on in the tour. Where is Mayetta? Montana. Is it in Montana? Close, maybe, I don't know. Kansas. <laughs> Nowhere near. All right. You know better than me. Uh, later on in the tour, he goes to, I don't, I'm not even going to say this correctly. Um, Pierre's, I'll guess. Pierre's. He's playing at the Pierre's Freedom Fest. That sounds pretty good. Where is Pierre's? Uh, now, this one, I would say, is in Ohio. Oh, jeez. Oh, Minnesota. Oh, well, y- you could have known that, right? Yeah, I've never heard of that place. <laughs> Then he uh, later on in his tour, he's playing at the Menard County Fair. He's doing county fairs. Here we go. That's in Petersburg. Petersburg, what? Peter, we're not. It's not St. Petersburg. Uh, I know that. I would say, man, this is like the bowl games we did that one time. Uh, I would say, let's go Illinois. Is it uh, Illinois potentially? It is Illinois. Really? Wow, there you nailed go. it. There we the go. The Menard County Fair in Petersburg, Illinois next month. Get your tickets, folks. A couple more of these. This is Trace Atkins' tour this summer. He's playing at the Sweet Home Jamboree in Sweet Home. That's the name of the town, Sweet Home. What state is that in? 
Alabama. I mean, is, is, is it Alabama? <laughs> it's got to be Alabama, right? It, sh- it should be. <laughs> and the mayor's Leonard Skinner. Uh, it's uh, uh, Sweet Home, Oregon. What? What? Yep. He's going all the way out to Oregon? Yeah, well, then how about this one? He's playing at the Big Valley Jamboree. I used to play in jamborees when I was in fifth grade. Our <laughs> basketball team would be in a jamboree. Uh, Cam Rose, I'm going to guess is how you say it. Cam Rose, where is that? Washington State. Close. It's a trick question. It's in Canada. Oh, jeez. Cam Come Rose, on. Canada is at least, where at, it's listed. At least Trace, you know, that he knows he has a Canadian audience. He's got an international audience. Good for him. That's that, fair point. <laughs> he's an international star. Uh, he's playing at the State Line Speedway in Post Falls. Mm. Where's Post Falls? Post Falls. Now, is that in Washington State? I think you're close. It's in Idaho. Uh, yeah, I guess. I guess. Got a couple buddies from Idaho, actually. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, okay. He's playing at the Sandwich Fair in September. Ugh. I'm there. No doubt. And, and by the way, underneath it says, sign up for uh, Tracy's mailing list to stay notified on this event. Yeah, for the Sandwich Fair. Where? Uh, it's in Sandwich is the name of the town. In uh, What state? What state loves their sandwiches? That's what I was trying to think. Where is the sandwich most popular? Is this a Midwest? Uh, let me say the sandwich. You know, I'm going to go Missouri with that one. Illinois. Ah, jeez. Sandwich, Illinois. By the way, I suddenly want to go visit there. Yeah, that sounds sweet. All right, I'll give you an easy one. He's playing at the Crossing Casino in Pittsburgh. Where's Pittsburgh? <laughs> Uh, Pennsylvania. Wrong! He's playing in Pittsburgh, oh, Kansas. No, come <laughs> on. Is there no H at the end of no Pittsburgh? No H. Dang it. He can't he's not big enough for Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's gotta <laughs> go to the Pittsburgh, Kansas. Soon he'll make it to the Pittsburgh with an H. He'll make it to the Rivers Casino in Pittsburgh yeah. one day. Uh man, there's so many on here. I very few of these places actually know. You think he's traveling in a van or can he get a tour bus? <laughs> I hope a tour bus because he's literally, he plays, he, so he's playing tonight in Michigan, tomorrow in Wisconsin, Sunday in Iowa, mm-hmm. Tuesday in South Dakota. He plays every night. Then he goes to Kansas. The next night he's in Illinois, then Indiana. Then he does take about two weeks off. Maybe that's when the USFL is in, uh, in two weeks. And then in July, he's in Iowa one night, Minnesota the next. He goes to Illinois, back to Minnesota. He's in Delaware two nights later, Canada two nights after that. couple of stops in Canada. This guy is performing every night in these random towns. Everywhere. Tonight, he's in St. Ignace, Michigan, which, as I said, has fewer than 3,000 people. What is Trace Atkins doing going that town? Now, I do think he's been married three times, so I don't know. Maybe, right, you lose half of everything in the divorce, and he, uh, he's got to go perform for the USFL. I would say, Luke, his top song right now, uh, You're, you're Gonna Miss Me. I do know I'm that not, one. Yeah, yep. you definitely know that one. That's uh, 85 million plays on Spotify. Wow. He's got 2.9 monthly listeners, but I would say there's a significant drop-off between You're Gonna Miss Me and the rest of his uh, uh, top five songs. The next closest is at uh, 50 million. So That's you're going to miss good, me. Though. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I just looked up, like, to compare Darius Rucker's yeah. monthly listeners, 7.5. So there's Ooh. a yeah a couple mil difference between yeah. Darius, who seems like he's kind of at the height of it, and, right. uh, and Trace Atkins. Yeah, he's got almost three times as many. Yeah. I don't, I'm not a big country guy. I know Trace Atkins' name. And so I thought, oh, he's performing at the USFL uh, playoff there. Their championship or whatever, the Final Four, I don't know when he's playing. I thought, that's a pretty good get for USFL. Mm. And then I saw his toilet. He was just in some place called Webster, Massachusetts. I grew up not far from there. I've never heard of Webster, Massachusetts. He's not playing Boston. He's playing Webster. He is going to my home state of Connecticut, but he's playing 
at the Warner Theater in Torrington. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Not one of the big, uh, big, you know, concert event halls we have in the state. Could he sell out the Credit One Stadium? That's that's a big question. Could he sell it out? That is a good question. I'm going to say no. I would agree with you. That floor would look a lot, very bare, more bare than it did the Lumineers, and it was yeah. pretty packed up. I mean, again, tonight he's performing in a town that has fewer than 3,000 people. What are right. we doing here? Right. That's like my buddies would try to start a band in high school. They would play in towns like that at uh, <laughs> the name of some of these things. Tonight he's at the Kewitin Shores Outdoor. Then he goes to the Ho-Chunk Gaming Dells. I don't even know what that is. Then he's playing the Prairie Band uh, Casino and Resort. By the way, I you know I grew up in Connecticut where we have, at one time, the two biggest casinos. Uh, and they would have like the whatever they called the Wolf Dens Lounge. Those guys would they'd be free concerts. So I don't know. He's playing at some casinos. I don't know if like they're free concerts. I don't know. I mean, obviously the casino will pay him, but they're not even charging tickets for these shows. Maybe that's the case because he's doing a lot of concerts. He's doing county fairs, state fairs. Anyways, trying to get it all out of the way at once. You know, Trace is busy man, busy man. Got to make you know some more bangers. I guess so. When you look at the the tour and it has jamborees littered all over and state fairs that's not good that's you see those acts when they're well beyond uh their fame and they've got to perform at state fairs so anyways i mean congrats to trace atkins for the usfl gig and also while i was looking up trace atkins i saw he's six six whoa he played college football and i think it was louisiana tech he was an offensive lineman wow good for him yeah six six i don't think you see a lot of six six country stars it's a big fella yeah. Uh, just also to put in context, looked up uh, Luke Combs, uh, probably yeah. like one of the biggest ones, monthly listeners, 11.8. So, uh, yeah, Trace, let's get some more bangers out there, pal. Yeah. Get some Spotify plays. Here we go. Do you have any Trace Atkins songs on your playlist? No, you know, I, I do not. He never comes out. I mean, if I'm if I'm rolling country, you know, you're going to miss me. That that chorus is one of the best choruses you can find around. There's no doubt about it. True. It's, that is, even I'll say, that's not if a you bad play, song. If you play Chris Stapleton radio, you're bound to Ooh. have Trace Atkins come up at least once. Okay. I do like Chris Stapleton. Anyways, I didn't really anticipate spending 15 minutes on Trace Atkins, but I saw this news, and then I looked at the tour list, and I said, this is unbelievable. And he's, he's not starting out. He's 60 years old, right? So it's not like, well, he's, he just came out with his first hit, and he's still in his 20s grinding. He's been at it for, you know, like 35 years, and he's doing jamborees. But, hey, whatever uh, pays the bills and make you happy. You get to perform music for a living. So good on Trace. Now, that's our uh, – we use that music a lot. That's a little bit of – it's like elevator music is how I describe it. I found out today that Trent is a talker. In elevators. Yeah, I, I am oh, a talker. Oh, my goodness. I am a talker in the elevators, Luke, because of one certain reason. I always, I have one of the bigger fears in life is getting stuck in an elevator. So I would say that, one, I just like to chat with people sometimes. If you if you look like you're in a good mood, I'm bound to say something to you. Because I've had a couple people, I'm like, hey, how you doing? And they say, good. It's like, all right, well, I get it. I'm cool here. I'll just ride out this elevator, you and I together. If we get stuck, we're not going to have a good rapport, Luke. That's what I'm looking <laughs> for. I'm looking for a good rapport just in case we go down and we're going to be stuck in this elevator for a couple hours. I am not an elevator talker. <laughs> no surprise. Yeah, of course. And if the elevator, I'll first open my mouth if the elevator then gets stuck. And then I'll turn to that person and say, hey, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> What's your name? It looks like we're going to be here a while. Until that moment, though, I am not talking in an elevator. I usually, I mean, I don't go for names normally. It's like, you know, you got a Target bag, a uh, successful day shopping today. You know, oh, just one, no, that's one the of those worst. Things. Oh, it's the best, Luke. Oh. It's the best. 
You get people in a good mood, they leave the elevator. They're like, you know what? That's a good guy right there. That's uh, a good guy. I don't know. I think they say that. That's an annoying guy. Well, Keep try, me off the elevator. I'm trying to make myself look like a good guy because the past couple of weeks I've made myself look like a bad guy on this show with my concerts, oh, you yeah. know, and things that's of that fair. nature, that's my uh, CrossFit. So I don't want to be a bad guy. I want to look yeah. like a good guy. Yeah, that's true. You're a good elevator guy. <laughs> All right. So now where do you draw the line? On an airplane? You're talking to the person next to you? Depends on the vibe. Depends on the vibe. Right. I'll always have the headphones in on the yeah. airplane. That, I think that's most important. But if somebody, like, especially – actually, I have conversations with older folks on uh, on planes. I really – they sit down, and they usually start talking yes. to you. And you can either be rude and just be like, you know, or thank you or start reading a book or something. But, no, I mean, we're chatting. We're chatting. It's, but, and it also depends where you're sitting. I think that's a big that's part. True. If you're in, you know, a three-row and you and the person in the middle are sitting but the person on the aisle – is like not talking to you. I feel like it's a waste of time. But if you're in a mm-hmm. two-seater, let's lock in, pal. Let's, let's have a chat. So you're open to it, though. Yeah, You're definitely. open to the airplane talking. All right, what about if you're waiting in a line? I don't know. You're at uh, Walmart. You're at a restaurant, like a takeout line or something. If you're waiting in line, it's going to be a little while. Mm-hmm. You, you turn around or you, to the person in front of you, you're going to talk to somebody in the line? Actually, I did that a couple weeks ago huh. because it was taking a long time. And uh-huh. the lady behind me tapped me and she said, how long is this taking? And I said, I've been here for about 25 minutes. Ooh, and so we had to talk about, you, you know, restaurant service uh-huh. and cleanliness. You know, just little things, things of the, that nature. Luke, I like chatting. <laughs> That's it. Hey, you're I in the right like industry chatting. then. I like chatting, man. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other examples. I guess those are the ones I got. You would do none of those things, right? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, you're, Airplane? you're correct. No. No. No chatting on the airplane. Probably not. If it's somebody I'm interested in, if it's like, so I've never sat next to a celebrity, but you know, if it's somebody like I would actually want to talk to, right? Sure. But if it's just some random stranger that it's like, hey, am I gonna make small talk? No, thank you. Headphones in. Not interested. I've had people. I've had some chatty people sit next to me. Yeah. Not always the best flight. Um, <laughs> elevator? No, probably not. Unless again, like if I see him around the building. Yeah. If I see him frequently, then I may just say hello, whatever. I'm not going to be a total jerk and blow off somebody where it's clear, like, yeah, you recognize one another. Right. But if it's a complete stranger, I've never seen him before, no, I'm not talking to the elevator. Unless maybe, you know, once in a while, I'll be a little folksy. I'll crack a joke if something comes to mind. <laughs> I think it's worth saying something about whatever. Maybe they come on with a target back. Yeah. Maybe. maybe I'll crack a little joke every once in a while if I have something. How about that inflation? But <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um. Yeah, you land on the airplane, you turn to them and say, how about that flight? Um, <laughs> waiting in line, I've had people, if people, so this is what I always say. Growing up, people used to call me, it's it's interesting that I wound up in this industry, my family still gives me a hard time, because I'm, I'm outside, of the, outside of the microphone, away from the microphone, I'm a pretty quiet person. Yeah. So, and most people in this industry are not, that's why they're in this industry, because they love to hear themselves talk. I'm really not that way. Um, so, except, of course, when I'm working, then I can't stop talking for these three hours. But... People would call me shy growing up. Mm. And I always say, I'm not shy. I'm just quiet. If you come up and you talk to me, I'll have no problem carrying on a conversation. Right. I'm just not one to strike up a conversation. I'm not a small talk guy. So my point being, like, if I'm in line waiting at a store and somebody taps me on the shoulder and starts talking, yeah, you know, I'll carry the conversation with them. But I'm not going out of my way to Mm. turn around and say, like, man, this is some line. (laughs) What have you been up to today? I'm not doing it. Not at the bank, post office, nothing. Like, I'm just in there to get my, you know, I'm getting in and out. Not looking to make friends. Yeah, I mean, you know, Luke, sometimes I'll just turn around. If the person looks interesting, that's like on the plane. If the person looks interesting, you sit that's down, fair. you got a nice watch on or, you know, something, I'm going to point it out, and then boom, conversation happens. You might leave that plane with a new best friend. Who knows? That's fair. <laughs> 
it, you know, I'll also say it's dependent on where I'm flying to. If I'm flying back, mm-hmm. in this case, flying back to South Carolina, I figure, well, this person on the plane, they must live in the area. And then you talk about that new friend. They could be, but if I'm flying to, like, I'm going on vacation or yeah. something, like, oh, I'm probably, what are the chances I'm ever going to see this person again, right? Then I'm definitely not talking to them because uh, it's just for the two hours I'm on the flight. But if, if I'm flying, you know, back to wherever I live and I'm going to be there for a while and figure, oh, this person probably lives there too, right? Then, yeah, you could strike up a conversation and maybe make a friendship out of it. So, anyways, I don't think I'm as miserable as I may come off on the air. I just keep, I just keep to myself. If you come up to me and talk, like, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to have a conversation with you. I just don't go out of my way to to start small talk. These are folks. This is just a typical local celebrity here that's <laughs> yeah, you know that's putting a, on his hoodie and glasses, doesn't want anybody talking to him. It's okay. You can approach yeah. Luke Morrow. He's all right. Yeah, I'm like Paul McCartney. I go into the grocery store and I'm, I'm mobbed. I'm just trying to pick up my bananas and I can't get out of there. Anyways. When we come back, look out. Here come the Braves. And there's a reason why. That apparently got them going. Plus, uh, yesterday was an anniversary in the baseball world. We'll touch on that, too, when we come back. More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers. Lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. You're going to miss this. You're going to want this back. You're going to wish these days. That's what I say to people as I get off the plane. Yeah, you're going to miss this. Yep. That's the first thing I say to them the whole flight. I look to them as I get up. You're going to miss this. And then I walk off the plane. They're like, who was that guy? Yeah. <laughs> the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Hey, um, little Trace Atkins, star of the show today. Um, the Atlanta Braves are making a comeback here. They're going on a run. They're one of the hottest teams in baseball. So I said this about a week or two ago. I guess it was right around Memorial Day. What was that, last week? Because that's when you start to pay attention to Major League Baseball standings. And while I said, you know, the Braves at this point under 500, under Chief, but we've seen teams in years past, like the Braves last year, get off to slow starts and still turn it around. And when you look at run differential, you look at some of the things, you know, I, I've been saying for the past week or two, the NL East really is going to tighten up. And now the Phillies have won seven in a row and made a managerial change and they're playing better baseball. The Braves have won eight in a row. They are the two longest winning streaks in the league now that the Red Sox lost last night. And then even the Marlins, they have won three in a row. They're getting close to 500, and they still have they have a better run differential than the Braves despite being five games behind the Braves. So the Marlins have been playing better record, uh, better baseball than the record indicates. And then you have the Mets. And the Mets have been playing 500 baseball the last uh, week and a half. They're a little beat up. They hope to be getting Scherzer back soon. DeGrom's going to start throwing. They've had some hit-by-pitches that have led to their batters missing time. But right now, the Braves, only six and a half games. I say only six and a half games back, and we still have so much baseball left to go. We still have over 100 games remaining. This NL East, I think, is going to get really interesting as the summer goes on, especially the fact that you consider for the Braves a couple things. Number one, I mean, the NL overall is just – Really, all of baseball. Baseball is kind of the, the haves and the have-nots. If you exclude the Braves, there's only six other teams in the NL that have a winning record, and the Mets are the only other one in the NL East. More teams have losing records than winning records. And if you look at the Braves' schedule, 
They just played. Like, they've beat up on some bad teams, Diamondbacks, Rockies, Athletics, but that's what you have to do. you got to beat the teams you're supposed to. And now they're, they're playing the Pirates, and then they get the Nationals, and then they get the Cubs, and then finally you get into the Giants and the Dodgers in 10 days. That's why you have to take advantage of these games in the next week and a half, which they're already doing on this eight-game winning streak. But win these next three series, and then once you get to the Giants and the Dodgers at the end of the month, right? you've already built yourself a little breathing room that even if you lose those series, you're doing okay. And that'll be a big litmus test for them. They'll be at home in Atlanta, Giants for four, Dodgers for three. That'll be fun at the end of this month, a good little test just uh, a few weeks out of the All-Star break at the time. But this NL East, I know the Mets have been playing really good baseball, but uh, they're a little beat up, slumping a little bit right now. And here come the Braves, the Phillies. The division's tightening up. I think the Braves will continue to play better. I read a good story uh, from The Athletic this morning about the Braves on this eight-game winning streak, and maybe it's a coincidence, but it started after Brian Snicker held a team meeting. And we hear a lot about team meetings in baseball, and I think they're a good thing, a little bit of a wake-up call. And for the Braves, that seemed to be the story with Snicker and the Braves, where at the time, prior to the team meeting, look, they were defending uh, World Series champs, and yet they were you know, under 500. They were 23 and 27. And it was a little bit of a wake-up call, like, hey, you know, we can't rest on our laurels. We gotta get, we gotta get going. You can't be too comfortable off of last year's World Series, right? A little bit of a kick in the pants, essentially. And an author, Samuel Johnson, way back in the day, not Samuel Jackson. Samuel Johnson once said, "People need to be re- reminded more often than they need to be instructed." And maybe that was the case here. Just reminding them that a, like we were World Series, World Series champs a year ago. We know the talent is here, and b. Even though we did it last year, let's not turn it into a habit of waiting until August to turn the season around. We're not playing good baseball. we got to start playing better baseball. And boy, have they. Eight straight wins since that meeting. And I think the Braves will continue to play good baseball all summer. I think the NL East will become really interesting. I mean, the Mets had, uh, what, 11-game lead on Memorial Day? Uh, I think it's going to be pretty tight as we head towards the second half of the season. Look out for the Phillies. I think the Marlins will continue to play better baseball. And uh, we'll see about those New York Mets as they try to get healthier. But here come the Braves, right, a little bit earlier than last season, but starting to play better baseball. It'll be interesting to see when they go up against the Giants and the Dodgers at the end of the month. Hey, speaking of the Mets, yesterday was an anniversary. Yesterday was the 23-year anniversary of Bobby Valentine getting kicked out of a game at Shea Stadium as manager of the Mets and coming back into the dugout in his disguise. We were talking about this earlier this week, in fact. I didn't realize that this week was the anniversary. And then Bobby V even went out on the field for the handshake line after the game, and the cameras caught him in the dugout with his little disguise as he was hiding. Uh, Patrick Mahomes' father and Oral Hershiser were supposed to be blocking Bobby V so nobody could see him, but the cameras still saw him in his disguise with his fake mustache and his glasses and his hat on. He ended up getting suspended for three games and fined $10,000 for that incident in 99. We had Bobby V on the show going back now uh, almost two years ago at this point, and that wasn't the first time he had done something like that. He has told that story many times, but he told this story with us two years ago about the first time he went dressed up to a baseball stadium back in the 80s. I was uh, in Minnesota. I got suspended for a few games. My friend around uh, umpired it and liked what I said to him, I guess, or, or something like that. And they threw me out of the stadium for three games. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, in Minnesota, I wanted to... Uh, still give the signs and still take the picture out. So I sat in the left field stands uh, with a similar disguise. It didn't work very well uh, as I was going up the escalator uh, to make my way out to the left field bleachers. A fan coming down the escalator looked at me and said, 
Hey, Bobby, how you doing? Where are you going? <laughs> so uh, I, I don't, I don't know if either disguise uh, was really a disguise. It was just kind of a uh, show of respect, I guess. Okay, you threw me out of the game. Big deal. I think it was silly you did that, and I'll be silly again. <laughs> it's one of the more iconic moments, though. Twenty-three years ago, yesterday, a Bobby V returning to the Mets dugout dressed up like that. It's uh, it's a very funny moment. It's one of the moments you probably think of most from '90s baseball. And uh, yesterday was the anniversary. I saw that online after he got off the air, and I said, oh, I didn't even realize that, that was the anniversary. Uh, and one of the more uh, funnier moments in baseball from over the years. So, anyways, happy anniversary to Bobby Valentine, who is credited with starting the rap, not the music genre, but the sandwich. If you've ever had a rap sandwich, Bobby V is the one that supposedly started that many years ago. So there you go. He gave you the wrap sandwich as well. When we come back, time for Trent's Takes. The Morrow Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Hey, we'll be talking about that new uh, Adam Sandler basketball movie, Hustle, come Monday. We'll give you our official reviews. So you have the weekend to watch if you want to play along. I saw more people yesterday in the sports world saying this is the best basketball movie I've ever seen. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. High praise. You Coach Carter guy? before uh not, not really, really. No. yeah i kind of feel that way too i'd have to think back to my favorite ba- i like blue chips i have to think back mm-hmm. to my favorite basketball movies because i think there's a lot more just off the top of my head i feel like there's certainly a lot more baseball movies i feel like there's not a ton of football i feel like there's not i feel like basketball has been a sport that hasn't done it hasn't been done as much as some others great documentaries uh yeah. on basketball like i mean winning time obviously sure. absolutely amazing yeah right we so we did get winning time now so that's yeah. It's a series. Yeah, so like, right. I guess it's not like a two-hour movie. Yeah. Anyways, I'll be watching uh, Hustle over the weekend. We'll talk about it on Monday, and uh, I guess uh, Adnan Verk will join us on Monday, who covers Major League Baseball, used to work for ESPN, but he's a huge movie buff. He has a movie podcast, so I wanted him to come on the show last week to talk about Die Hard. This is even better. We'll have him talk about all the Die Hard uh, – not Die Hard. Why am I saying Die Hard? Top Gun. We'll have him talk about all the Top Gun uh, – Rage, and then also um, the new uh, basketball movie, Hustle, with Adam Sandler. So we'll talk a little a little movies on Monday. And, of course, the NBA Finals and everything else going on. Uh, all right, around this time every day, we find out what's on the mind of the producer. It's time for Trent's Takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's Panther. right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The Radio Cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, before we get any, uh, into any sporting topics, would like to point out that Season 6 of Peaky Blinders is back out today, Luke. All you Peaky Blinders fans out there, it's one more time for the Shelby family. This series is going to end in a two-plus-hour movie. Absolutely fired up for the Shelby family is the greatest family to ever hit Netflix. Probably the entire, you know, continent of Europe. They are unbelievable folks. Wow. Very tough, very gritty. Luke, I really want you to watch it. Birmingham, England. How could you get any better? 1930s. Absolutely phenomenal. But that is out today. Also, I would like to say, we talked about Aaron Rodgers' uh, new uh, lady 
uh, yesterday, yes. I believe, right? Yeah. Did a little uh, digging on uh, Blue and uh, found her uh, Instagram page. Uh, all I have to say is let's quit talking about Aaron Rodgers and his new gal because this lady's going to bring us a Super Bowl back to uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. You absolutely know it. She went to her uh, Instagram because a lot of people were calling her Blue of Earth, thinking that's her actual name. She addressed a couple things we talked about, Luke. Maybe she was listening to the show. Who knows? She said, P.S. My name is Blue, not Blue of Earth. That's one thing. And no, I don't identify as a witch, even though it seems like some of her practices in the uh, holistic medicines are witch-like, which is a little interesting, but she does not identify as a witch, so we gotta lay off. Let's stop harping on Blue of Earth and Aaron Rodgers and let them, let love love, Luke. Come on now. I mean, what are we doing here? Sounds exactly like what a witch would say, (laughs) trying to throw us off her scent. I'm on to you, Blue of Earth. And that witchcraft is going to be coming to Minnesota week one of the NFL season with Rodgers now. Oh, yeah, you know, you know, I mean, she's going to, you know, take us through the division. Won't be any problems with Minnesota, Detroit, the Bears. I mean, bug on the windshield. We get to the playoffs. She's in the stands. Packers are winning the Super Bowl. That's just how it goes. Uh, Luke, tonight, game four of the NBA Finals. I think I've got a couple props. I think I've got a couple right. props. Trenty props is coming back, ready to move. I will say the number currently, the spread is at four. Feel good about the Warriors. I'm going to take the plus four. I'm not going to take them to win outright, but I'm going to take the plus four. And I will also say, everybody's talking about Curry being injured, and I do believe he's a guy, and when people are talking like this, he's gone off every single game of the series. I think it happens again tonight. Give me Warriors plus four. Uh Steph Curry over four and a half threes. I think he's going to go, and I think he's going to go early, Luke. We're going to see a lot of threes in the first half. And Andrew Wiggins, this is the game tonight where Andrew Wiggins steps up when the Warriors need it most. If Draymond's not going to step up, if Looney's not going to step up, if Poole's not hitting his shots, one guy's got to step up, that being Andrew Wiggins. Give me his over 16.5. I think Clay obviously had a great game three, even though it was kind of quarters two and three where he was hitting shots. Quarter one, quarter four, he didn't score any points. Scored 25 points in two quarters. I don't think he will be able to replicate that. Again, and also the Boston crowd's going to be hammering on Clay Thompson and hammering on Draymond Green for the postgame comments. But also, you could look at that and say, Clay Thompson's a guy who can rise up from this adversity with the fans going at him. That's not a guy that you want to get hot because he is an automatic bucket, as we know and as we've seen. But I'm with you, Luke. Everybody's talking about this series being over if the Warriors lose tonight. I don't believe so. Until until the Warriors, like I said yesterday, that final minute of Game 7, Game 6, wherever it is, I'm not going to believe that the Warriors are going to lose this series because of the dominance in the last eight years that we've seen from this team. They have the same coach, but if Andrew Wiggins steps up tonight and the role players step up tonight, if Jordan Poole, I'm not going to take his player prop, but if they step up, I think the Warriors have a legit chance to win and win this series. I'm right with you, Luke. We set it at the start of the series. Warriors in six. I'm sticking to it tonight, Luke. Yeah, I agree. If you want to see how ridiculous, like I love this industry, I love what I do, but if you want to see some of the ridiculous nature that's part of this industry, yeah, wait to see. If the Warriors win tonight, everyone's going to be talking leading up to Game 5 about how the Warriors are going to win the series (laughs) after everyone's been talking about Boston winning the series the last 48 hours. Tonight is the series. If the Warriors lose, you're down 3-1. I know they'll be home for two of the next three. That's probably asking too much, though. But if Golden State wins tonight... 2-2 series, and they're home for two of the last three in a three-game series. What becomes a three-game series? That's why I think this talk is so premature about Boston. So, yeah, we're in agreement. 
I like uh, the thought process and the props. I think the Warriors win tonight, and this series is far from over, assuming, of course, that they win tonight, which I think they do. Uh, so you think Steph Curry, even with the concern around the ankle, you think we get no problem, good Steph Curry performance? I don't think he'll drop 30, but okay. I think I think five threes is probably uh, a good number. I mean, this guy shoots from 30 feet 50%, so if he takes 12 of them, he's bound to hit at least four or five, and that's what I'm kind of going for here. But no, I mean, Steph Curry's a superstar. He's one of the best of all time. He's the greatest shooter of all time. This is a guy who steps up in these kind of moments where everybody this morning on ESPN was talking. Oh, I mean, if Curry's if Curry's ankles hurt, I mean, the series is over. I'm not doubting this team, Luke. I really can't up until, you know, it's 4-1 to one and the Celtics win the series. I just can't see any world right now that the Celtics, with the amount of inconsistency that they've had this entire playoff series, to win this series in seven. I don't see it whatsoever i really don't and, and again vegas has curry with the highest point total tonight so either they think he'll be fine or they're kind of preying on suckers who yeah. think he's going to be fine we'll see which one tonight but we're both in agreement here i think golden state wins tonight yeah there's no doubt luke now you were mentioning uh talking about dj uyungle um a little bit ago and i had something yesterday that i wanted to talk about didn't get to go for it so i'm going to do it right now since you were chatting about him Last season, DJ threw 2,200 yards, 9 touchdowns, 10 interceptions in 13 games with a 55% completion rate. Would you believe me, Luke Morrow, if I told you that DJ had the fourth best odds to win the Heisman this upcoming season? Would you believe me if I told you that? I would not. Well, it's true, Luke. He's got the best, uh, fourth best odds out of every player in college football right now. That baffles me. I don't know if this is Vegas kind of thinking, oh, those two games, like you mentioned, uh, that he sat in for Trevor, that's what we're waiting on. I also will say last year's roster compared to rosters before, especially at the pass catching position, were not up to par. They didn't have Amari Rodgers and T. Higgins and Justin Ross, at least when he was healthy. They didn't have that. They had a bunch of young guys. You had Dabo's son out there, you know, playing valuable minutes in a ACC game. Wild to even think about that. I just don't see a world where if you look at every quarterback in college football and say that DJ has the fourth best odds to win the Heisman, I don't know what Vegas is doing right now, but it shocks me. Personally, I don't think Spencer Rattler is going to sniff the Heisman trophy, but I would put him to have better odds than I would with DJ as of right now because of the stat line that I just listed out. I mean, nine touchdowns, 10 interceptions, 13 games, 55% completion percentage. What are we doing? Is this JV? I mean, come on, Luke. It's ridiculous that he's the top four in the Heisman voting. I agree with you uh, on all accounts. I would say I think Spencer Rattler has shown more. Ironically, even though he, you know, he lost his job in Oklahoma, I've been more impressed with him. I do think he will have a better year. I was just trying to think of quarterbacks that had like the one-year turnaround in college football. And so I went and just real briefly, as you were talking, Trent, like Joe Burrow, I looked up Kenny Pickett. Even the year before, they really hit it big. I mean, they put up much better numbers than DJ. Joe Burrow had at least 16 touchdowns, five interceptions before his Heisman year. Kenny Pickett, two years ago, 13-9. and nine. Not huge, gaudy numbers, but DJ had more interceptions than touchdowns last year and had nine touchdowns all year. Uh, I just don't see the big turnaround this year like we've seen from maybe a Joe Burrow or to be the, the fourth favorite for the Heisman. Right, no doubt. Luke, a little uh, question here. You were hammering me on questions, so I got you with one right here, as I usually do. If a non-quarterback were to win the NFL MVP this season, out of these three phenomenal players, who are you taking to win it? Obviously, it's a quarterback award. We all know that. 
But Jonathan Taylor at plus 5,000. Derrick Henry probably going to win the comeback player of the year this season. Derrick Henry at plus 5,000. Or Cooper Cup to have another phenomenal season Ooh. at plus 7,500. If a quarterback weren't to win this award, which of those three guys would do it? They have the best odds out of any non-quarterback in, uh, in the NFL right now to win. That's a great question. I, I'm, I'm tempted to say Cooper Cup, but I think I would actually go with Derrick Henry because mm. I think Derrick Henry... But Cooper Cup, well, the problem with the issue that wide receivers oftentimes run into is that whenever a wide receiver puts up big numbers, it means the quarterback's putting up big numbers. And you give some of that credit to the quarterback. Running back is dependent on an offensive line, but you don't talk about offensive line in an MVP award. We've had a running back win the MVP far more recently. We've had a lot of running backs win the MVP since the last wide receiver. So I think Derrick Henry, because we know he is the most valuable piece to Tennessee. The Titans have been a playoff team the last, what, three years? They'll probably be in the playoffs again this year. And if they are, I think it has a, a, more to do with Derrick Henry. Cooper Cup may lead the league in, in uh, receiving yards this year. But when he has a big year, it means the quarterback has a big year. And then when you talk about value and winning games, Stafford would probably steal enough of that credit that it would keep Cooper Cup from getting the MVP award. So I would say, I guess I would guess uh, uh, Derrick Henry because uh, he is incredibly valuable to the Titans. He'll probably put up big numbers if he's healthy. Titans will probably go to the playoffs, and we've seen running backs win the award more than wide receivers. Yeah, let's remember, folks, that Derrick Henry led the NFL in rushing for five weeks after he got injured. So he was on track to have 2,000-plus yards at minimum within, I believe, 13 to 14 games. If he's healthy, let's assume he's going to have another record-breaking year. That's true. By the way, I don't think – a wide receiver has ever won the MVP, right? Have no, you? I don't no, think so. I don't think so. Cooper Cup would be the first. He'd be a good candidate to become the first. Uh, but I'd probably pick Derrick Henry. That's another good question. We'll have hour two next. More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Having up hour two of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. Programming note, we'll be breaking down Hustle, the new basketball movie from Adam Sandler that's on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you can watch it. We'll break it down Monday. Adnan Verk will join us Monday uh, around 1 p.m. We'll talk some movies. We'll talk some baseball with him. We'll talk about this new movie. We'll come in. I'm going to have notes. We're going to break it down. We'll try not to spoil too much. And I also, as you watch it, Trent, I want you to think about where it will rank in terms of your top basketball movies. Ooh, okay. Or Let's just go. sports movies in general. Yeah, we can do. Yeah, I feel like there's just a, not as many basketball movies yeah, like uh, we were just talking about. I think about. That's, that may be the issue. We may yeah. have to c- include all sports films. Dale reached out to the show and said, Hoosiers. As we were talking about, not a ton of basketball movies. I am a Hoosiers guy. That's a classic. I do like Hoosiers. We'll see how Hustle compares over the weekend. Hour three coming up next. We'll get back to the NBA Finals after this. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Yes, it's back, 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 back
Back again. Shady's back. Tell a friend. Guess who's back? 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 Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, I got a, a thought on the golf world, the Live Golf Tour continuing here today. Plus, we'll get to some big questions in college football for the upcoming year and how this NBA Finals is an example of things in life usually coming full circle. Get to that coming up here on the Morrow Midday Show. On ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. You can always get in touch with the show. Head over to charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page and leave a comment for the show there. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. Text the show 843-608-1734. Or give us a call 843-721-9500. Game four of the NBA Finals is tonight. We've been talking about it throughout this afternoon. And I think the Warriors win tonight. I think they even up the series. And I think we're still in for a good NBA Finals. If Boston wins tonight, however, then I would concede the series to the Celtics going up 3-1. And it may depend on the health of Steph Curry, but I think he'll be fine. I think he plays well. I think the whole Warriors team plays better. I think they even the series tonight. But I also think that Life is uh, cyclical, or maybe a, the more maybe the more accurate term is just full circle, right? Things come full circle in life. You grow up, and your parents have to take care of you, and then, as you continue to grow up, you have to take care of your parents, right? By the end, or even you were on the other side of those battles as a kid with your parents, and you would, as a kid, right, always argue with their parents wanting to be able to do certain things, and they wouldn't let you. Or they have to ground you. They have to punish you. Or they preach how important homework was, and you don't want to hear them, and you want to go out and play with your buddies. Or you want to stay out late on the weekends. And then as you grow up and you have a family of your own, maybe it's kind of like uh, cats in the cradle. Right? You have a family of your own, and you realize now, like, the shoe's on the other foot. You're on the other side of those arguments. And you're trying to discipline your kid and tell them why they can't stay out all night on Saturday and why they have to get their homework done. And then you realize maybe how difficult you were on your parents. Or you understand, like, actually, my parents weren't as big of jerks as I thought they were growing up. They were just being good parents. You do the same things your parents were doing. You're just on the other side of it now. You see it differently. You take the the telescope and you flip it around. And it happens a lot in sports as well because sports, you know, mirror life. The best example that immediately pops to mind would be in Green Bay where Aaron Rodgers has kind of become, at the end of his career, like Brett Favre was at the end of his because you always grow up to become your parent, whether you like it or not. And in this case, Rodgers kind of grew up to become, like, if you want to call him his parent, right, the, the guy that was there in Green Bay, the older quarterback when he first arrived, Brett Favre, the whole will he, won't he, kind of holding the team over a barrel. Rookie quarterback comes in. They're not really happy about it. Fans kind of turning on them by the end of the career. They love Favre. By the end, they were kind of sick of Favre trying to hold the Packers hostage and wanted to move on with Rodgers. Packer fans, at least before this Rodgers contract, that's the big difference. Five actually did leave. 
or they kind of shooed him out the door. Rodgers is still talking about staying until he ends his career there. But for at least a period of time, some fans were kind of turning on Rodgers, unhappy with how he was handling the whole situation. And I think this year's NBA Finals is also similar of that idea of life and sports coming full circle or being in on the other end of that, that situation, playing the other role of a situation you were once in. And this all stems from, I have to uh, thank good old Facebook and their Facebook memories. I came across a memory the other day of myself from 2015 talking about LeBron James and his struggles in the fourth quarter of the NBA Finals. And I could say the same thing about Steph Curry this year. And I think there's a lot of similarities between the two players, the two finals matchups, the two situations. Going back to 2015, LeBron was 31, playing in his sixth NBA Finals in his 12th season. Steph Curry this year is 34, playing in his sixth NBA Finals in his 13th season. In 2015, LeBron was facing a young Warriors team at the time that were in their first NBA Finals and were on to something bigger and and, and even better. And they were led by three young stars in Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green. This year, Steph Curry is facing a young Celtics team in their first NBA Finals, and uh, they're hoping to go on to bigger and better things starting this year. Led by three young stars, Tatum, Brown, and Smart. In 2015, LeBron struggled in the fourth quarter. This year, Steph Curry has struggled in the fourth quarter. In 2015, LeBron didn't have enough help around him. Kevin Love was injured. Kyrie Irving got injured. And he had to rely on J.R. Smith and Mozgov. And this year, Steph Curry hasn't gotten enough help around him either. He's been the best player in the NBA Finals, but then we get to the fourth quarter, and he did not play in the fourth quarter of Game 2. But the Warriors as a team were lousy. They were terrible in the first quarter of Game 1, and uh, the fourth quarter of Game 1, and the fourth quarter of Game 3. In fact, they were the, the two of the worst quarters they've ever had under Steve Kerr. And they were in the biggest minutes and moments of this series. And a big reason why the Warriors were not good enough in the fourth quarter is because Steph Curry wasn't good enough in the fourth quarter. You go the way of your star, typically. But this is not some sort of indictment on Steph Curry. There's enough Steph Curry haters out there. This is not some sort of theory, idea, thought segment to come on here and tell you that, oh, Steph Curry, he needs Kevin Durant. He's not good enough to win. He doesn't play well in the finals, or he falls up, he fades away in the fourth. This is more in support of Steph Curry and more of an indictment on the supporting cast. Because Curry, to me, still has been the best player consistently overall in this series through three games. But in the fourth quarters, he has scored seven total points. Not averaging seven points. He has scored a combined seven points in the fourth quarter. He has shot 30%. The greatest shooter we've ever seen is shooting 30% in the fourth quarter. As many turnovers as assists, the Warriors have been outscored by 30 in the fourth quarter alone when Steph Curry's on the floor. Terrible numbers. But again, not because he's choking. It's not because the moment is too big. It's because just like LeBron in 2015, I think by the time the fourth quarter comes around, they're just worn out. They're asked to do so much. They're not getting enough help. That by the time you get to the fourth quarter, they just they're running on fumes. They have nothing left. And for LeBron, obviously he was such he he still is you know so such a physical, athletic player. And the, the, you tire out by the fourth quarter. Steph Curry, it's a little bit different, but still the same in the sense that. It's vital for his game as well. He's an outside shooter. Go to your local gym this weekend and try to get up 53s and see how, how you feel by the, by the time you get to the 50th one. Right? You're going to tire yourself out. So let alone playing in an NBA game, offense, defense, and then in the fourth quarter after playing for 40 minutes and grinding on both ends and giving it your all, you just don't have your legs underneath you anymore to knock down these outside shots. 
That's why teams always practice foul shots at the end of practice to simulate what it's like at the end of a game. you got to step to that line. You are worn out. You don't have your legs underneath you. You still have to find a way to make that foul shot. So you practice it at practice, shooting when you're tired. It's a tough thing to do. It's why Steph Curry is shooting 30% in the fourth quarter. It's not because suddenly he forgets how to shoot the basketball or suddenly the South, oh, we better pay attention to this Curry guy in the fourth. No, they're double-teaming him all game. He doesn't just subtly mentally, right, oh, boy, it's the fourth quarter. I can't make a shot now. I think it's just because he's tired. He's worn out. He's doing everything for this team. In 2015, LeBron James had to rely on J.R. Smith and Timothy Mozgov. And this year for the Warriors, there hasn't been enough help either. Nobody helped Curry in game one. And despite his highest scoring performance, right, they got blown out. In game two, Jordan Poole stepped up, but Klay Thompson was non-existent. And then in game three, it flip-flopped. Klay Thompson stepped up. Jordan Poole didn't do enough in game three. When Steph Curry's on the floor, the Warriors in the, the NBA Finals alone. With Curry on the floor, they have the number one offensive rating in the league this year. It'd be the best offense in the league. When Curry's off the floor, not only is it the worst offense performance-wise in the NBA this year, it'd be the worst in 50 years based off of performance. That's a huge swing. Best offense in the league to the worst offense in 50 years when you take Curry off the floor. Because, again, he's just not getting enough help around him. That's why I think that even if this series, if it goes seven games and the Warriors still lose, Curry should be MVP just for getting them there. It's hard to look at it that way because this is a dynasty and they set the record for most wins in a season and you're used to seeing Clay and Draymond. Occur. But these aren't the same guys. I mean, Dray- Draymond is a shell of himself. He has more podcasts than, than stats this year. Clay Thompson, it's hard to take two years off because of brutal injuries and come back and be the player you once were. Maybe he'll get back to that point or closer to that point down the road. And even Steph Curry, he's 34 years old. He got old fast, uh, it seems. And I'm not talking about his physical play, but you just wake up one day and you're like, wow, he's 34. All right, that ever happened to you? You wake up and you think, like, oh, my goodness, I'm 40? When did that happen? We've been watching Curry for years. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, he's 34. I mean, LeBron James is uh, 38, heading into his 38-year-old season. And uh, we get the sense that he's kind of holding on. Curry isn't far behind. He's an older guy in the league. And yet still think of that impact he's had. Number one offense when he's on the floor, worst offense in 50 years when he's off the floor. I think Steph Curry's been the best player in this series, but the problem is if I were to finish out my top five list, the next four would probably all be Celtics. And you just can't win like that. Even if it was like a Michael Jordan, as good as Jordan was, if the next best uh, four next best players were all on the other team, he'd even have a hard time winning. And... You know, those Jazz teams were kind of close. You had Malone and Stockton were probably two and three. But you had Scottie Pippen at least who cracked the top five. The Warriors haven't had that Scottie Pippen, somebody in that top five. And the big difference in this series, look, Jason Tatum has not played great. He has not played like a star. Steph Curry has, and yet the Celtics are up two to one. The Warriors star has been better than the Celtics star. The NBA is usually just about stars, and yet the Warriors don't have the series lead. Why? Because the supporting cast have been much better for Boston than Golden State, and that's been the big difference. Now, as we've been saying all afternoon, and I've been warning you for the last 48 hours, and if I'm wrong tonight, I'll come on the air Monday and and eat crow, but I think this series is still far from over. I think Golden State wins tonight. I still think they win the series. But through the first three games, I can also admit, and maybe this is speaking out of both sides of my mouth, Boston has looked like the better all-around team, but I still think Golden State wins tonight and wins the series. Going back to 2015, LeBron was fantastic. He averaged 36 points per game that series. He was the best player in the series. 
and yet they still lost to Golden State because the Warriors had the next best players. They had Draymond Green in his prime and Klay Thompson in his prime and Steph Curry in his prime. In fact, they were just entering their primes. They were just getting started, kind of like the Celtics team. And for all the efforts of LeBron, his team still lost in six games. For all the Curry efforts this series, maybe they do lose this series. But I think the Warriors have enough experience and still have enough talent and have home court still that I think Golden State still wins this series. But it is very reminiscent to 2015 for me. right? Steph Curry has to do everything. For Boston, Jason Tatum could have a bad night. They could still win, and that's huge. When you can still win when your star doesn't play great. Good luck for Golden State. If Curry doesn't score... 20, at least 25, probably more close to like 30 points, they're going to have a hard time winning any of these games. They have the worst offense in 50 years when Curry's not involved. That is, And this team somehow is in the championship. It speaks to how good and impactful Steph Curry has been. The Warriors are 2-9 and nine in their last 11 finals games without Kevin Durant, right? because the rest of the supporting cast is not good. That's not an indictment on Steph Curry. That's an indictment on everybody else. Curry's doing his part. He doesn't have that Robin. He had it with Durant. And since Durant left and all these injuries and these guys have gotten older, Klay Thompson's not that rabid anymore. Jordan Poole had a, a good postseason, but here in the, it's a little bit different in the finals. He hasn't been that Robin. Wiggins, a little too inconsistent, hasn't been that Robin. The Warriors need somebody like that to step up. Similar to 2015, LeBron was in his sixth NBA Finals. He was playing in Cleveland at the time. Right? And as the Warriors beat the Cavs that year, it was a young Warriors team. It was the first time they were in the NBA Finals. They had no Finals experience. They had guys entering their prime. LeBron was older. And the Warriors won that Finals, and then we saw what they went on to accomplish. Fast forward to this year. If the Celtics do win this Finals, you know there's going to be talk about, okay, what can they do next? How much can they accomplish? How many championships are we looking at the next dynasty? You got a young team playing in the Finals for the first time, trying to win it, and you have guys entering their primes. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, still all 25 and younger. And they could be the next Warriors. Right? The Warriors were in this position 70 years ago. Now this year they're in LeBron's position. A lot like growing up, you used to argue with your parents, and now you're on the other side. You're the parent arguing with your kids, realizing what it was like for your parents back in the day to be in that position arguing with you. Steph Curry's finding out what it was like for LeBron James in that 2015 NBA Finals. He's dealing with it now. LeBron was not able to overcome it. We'll see if Curry can, but I do think the Celtics win tonight, or pardon me, the Warriors win tonight, and even the series. The quick turnaround from Wednesday, I, I assume Steph Curry will be good enough. I think you get less out of Robert Williams, less dominance inside, and the Celtics just, with how young they are, have been too inconsistent. I don't think they play as well as they did Wednesday. They've been one up, one down this whole postseason. I think Draymond Green is more focused. I think he plays better tonight. I think you get a better all-around effort from Golden State. They win tonight. And then we turn this finals into a three-game series. Tied at two, three games left. It becomes a three-game series, and Golden State will be home for two of the last three. We'll see what happens tonight. We'll, of course, break it down after the weekend. When we come back, we'll answer some of the bigger questions in college football for this upcoming season. Plus, a new college sport powerhouse. I'll touch on that for a moment, too, when we come back. More Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show.
It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. The football season may still be well, almost three months away, but it's never too soon to look ahead as we turn this offseason Friday into a quasi-football Friday. We'll answer some of the biggest questions in uh, college football in just a moment. But first, let me give props. I don't know if we've ever talked about um, college softball before on the Morrow Midday Show, but Oklahoma just won the national championship, and they beat their rivals, Texas. What a dominant program this has become. This is the new powerhouse in college sports. They're back-to-back champions in softball. And this is the sixth title for their head coach, Patty Grasso, who, uh, or Patty, uh, there is no R in that name, Patty uh, Gasso, who has uh, six national titles and all since 2000. They've won the championship the last two years. Listen to these records, and I know numbers don't always work great on radio. Last um, five years, and we could even go back further than that, but last five years specifically, 57 57-5, 57 57-6, 20-4, 56-4, 59-3. That's over the last five years. They have lost a total of 22 games in five years, winning two national championships. They also lost. They were the runner-up in the uh, Women's College World Series. And not only did they go 59-3 and three this year, that's the best record for women's softball since 1994, but also something like 40 out of those 59 wins were by the mercy rule. I mean, it's absurd. They were dominant. And also, the uh, last number that stands out in the, um, in the Big 12. In the Big 12 over the last six years, they have lost four games. So they're doing pretty good. And they play 18 games in the conference a year. They've lost six of them over the last six years. I mean, this is like Gino Oriema, UConn women's stuff. Uh, dominant for Oklahoma softball. So congrats to them on winning the national championship once again. It looked like it was a sold-out place. I don't know how they did on the TV. I was surprised just to see, like I don't know, Thursday night, uh, national title game. I mean, there's no NBA playoffs. It is kind of the quasi-weekend. Um, I don't know, Thursday, I thought that was kind of an odd time to have it. But nonetheless, congratulations to Oklahoma winning another national championship in softball. Speaking of college sports, we're gearing up for college football as always around here. We have compiled uh, just some generic questions to look at some of the uh, better teams in college football this year. Let's run through them. Uh, We'll run through some of the big questions for the upcoming college football season. And we use the SEC theme for everything because it's the best theme song in college football. So we have about seven questions. You could say because of a touchdown, an extra point if you want. But Trent will ask me, and I'll give my best answer possible for some of the biggest questions for college football this year. Luke, we begin with a pressing one. First question, which team will have the most wins and which team will have the fewest wins? Alabama, Ohio State, or Georgia? Starting out with a tough one. They are all projected to win 10.5 games this year, just to provide some context. Uh, I'll roll with Alabama. I think Saban is always the safest bet. That's to have the most wins. Um... Ohio State is tempting as well. Georgia, man, that is actually, now that I think about it, that's a tough question. I'll take Alabama because uh, I think they'll have the best quarterback in the country, they'll have the best defensive player in the country, they'll have the best coach in the country. So if I'm picking which of these three teams will have the best year, I think Alabama's the safe bet. If I had to pick worst, I guess I'll say Georgia. Now, worst could still be a really good year, but for Georgia, you lost a lot of guys off that defense. 
They have the worst quarterback out of the three. Maybe there's some sort of hangover to winning the national championship. I think Alabama wins the SEC, and Ohio State wins the Big Ten. So by process of elimination, I'll have to say Georgia has the worst year out of those three. Alabama will have the best. But those are obviously those are the three teams that are the most favored in college football this year. Those are believed to be the three best teams. So, you know, pick your poison. But I'll go Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia in that order. There we go. Uh, Next question here, Luke. Which Clemson coach will have the best year? Dabo Swinney, Brent Venables, or Tony Elliott? Hmm. So the way I would look at this is not necessarily wins and losses, but like the most impressive job. So if Tony Elliott really elevates Virginia, you could say he did a better job than Dabo Venables, even if he didn't win as many games. With all of that said, I'm going to go back to I think Dabo has the best year. Uh, I think Tony Elliott taking over Virginia is not easy in year one, and I'm not high on Brent Venables, at least to begin, at Oklahoma. Uh, They fortunately got Dylan Gabriel to come in and play quarterback, but Oklahoma lost their their star quarterback, their best wide receiver. They lost their backup quarterback. A lot of changes over there. You're going from an offensive-themed team to a defensive team. First time as a head coach for Venables. The Big 12 wide open. So I, I will say, Dabo, I think Clemson will have a good year. I voiced my concerns about Clemson in the first hour in terms of winning the ACC. But I have low expectations for Tony Elliott in year one. I have low expectations for Oklahoma in year one of Venables. I think they take a big step back this year. And Clemson, even if they have the same record as a year ago, I mean, we could say that's underachieving for Dabo. But I think uh, Clemson will have the best year of those three. So I'll say Dabo. I, I, I'm kind of talking myself out of it. But I'll say Dabo has the best year of those three coaches. Luke, next one here. Who will have the better year, Marcus Freeman or the family man, Brian Kelly? I think definitely Brian Kelly. I'm not as high on Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame. Now, Notre Dame has one of the higher win totals this year. I don't know. I just don't see it. Um, I'm concerned about Freeman. He's a great recruiter. As of now, Notre Dame is the best recruiting class for next year's class. But what about actually winning games? Freeman's a first-time head coach. He's in his early 30s. He's only been a coordinator at the uh, at this level for just a couple years. I have a lot of concerns. Meanwhile, Brian Kelly's a proven winner. Now, I know he's coming into the SEC. He'll play a tougher schedule than Freeman will at Notre Dame. But Brian Kelly has won everywhere he has gone, and he's had immediate success. And I think he'll turn around LSU right away. Will they go in the SEC this year? No, but I think they'll be very competitive. Uh, Notre Dame, to me, I, I just have concerns over the long haul. Freeman probably is stepping into maybe an easier situation to begin, but Brian Kelly is the better coach. I think Brian Kelly will have more success, and so I might as well say beginning right away in year one. I think LSU will have a better year this year than Notre Dame. I'm down on Notre Dame. I don't think... They'll be in the running for a playoff spot this year. Luke, outside of Georgia, Alabama, and Ohio State, which team will win 10-plus games? It's a tough one here. Now, again, going back to Vegas, they then have Cincinnati next in terms of the highest win total, followed by Michigan. I'm not going to say either one of those teams. I'm going to say, and I'm I'm, I'm leading the hype train right now, I'm going with Utah. I think Utah wins the Pac-12, and when I look at that conference – I think USC will be better this year. Oregon is always tough, but I have questions about Dan Lanning. I think UCLA will be improved this year, but overall, it's it's the Pac-12. I think Utah is really good. I mean, some people are talking about they could be a top-five team in the country this year. I don't know if I'd be that bold, but I think they'll be one of the better teams. We saw them make it to the Rose Bowl last year. They won the Pac-12 a year ago. Can they win 10 games playing in the Pac-12? I think so. I could see them going 10-2 and two in the regular season, winning the conference, and being another one of those teams to have double-digit victories. 
Uh, Cincinnati, I think, takes a step back. They lost a lot, including their quarterback. Michigan, I think, takes a step back. They lost a lot. Their best defensive players. But Utah is bringing back their quarterback. They're bringing back their running back. They're bringing back the coaching staff. They won the conference last year. So behind the three favorites, Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, I probably like Utah the most. Wow, Luke, that's a hot take right there, I feel like. Now, another question here. Who will be the second best team in the SEC East? You know my answer. <laughs> um, I'll say Tennessee. I'm going with Tennessee. Uh, I like Josh Heupel. I like what he's done at Tennessee. Now, they faded. They're better early in the year. They're also better early in games. That's an adjustment they have to make. The scripted plays were really good for Tennessee. Teams kind of caught up to them. Maybe that's a little bit of a concern. They're an offense that plays really fast. Maybe defenses will be better prepared for that in the SEC this year. But I just like Hooker. I like Tennessee. I like Heupel. I like what they have there. Uh, I think Georgia wins the conference. I think Florida will be improved this year. But they have too far of a way to climb to get to that point. Uh, I think Kentucky will probably win as many games as they did a year ago. South Carolina will be improved, but not enough. I think Missouri will be worse this year. Vanderbilt's irrelevant. So I think Tennessee will take a big step forward this year. Hooker will have a really good year. The offense will be still tough to stop. And I think it comes down to Tennessee or Kentucky for that two spot behind Georgia. I'll say Tennessee is the second best team in the East this year. Luke, which coach on the hot seat will have the best year? Will it be Scott Frost, David Shaw, uh, Jeff Collins with a G, and her or Herm Edwards? Which one? I think it's Scott Frost at Nebraska. Uh, Jeff Collins has never won more than three games. I don't think they'll be much better at Georgia Tech. He'll probably be out of a job. Herm Edwards, there's a lot of noise around that program. They lost some coaches. They're still waiting on their punishment for some things they did wrong. Uh, some feel they maybe have even underachieved a little bit. They faded. Uh, I think that was last year after a good start. I'm not a big Herm guy right now at Arizona State. And then David Shaw, Stanford's just a tough job. And especially with the growing transfer portal, Stanford, Notre Dame, Northwestern, they can't take advantage of the transfer portal as much as other schools because of their strict academic requirements. So they're kind of falling behind, or at least it's, it's a disadvantage for them, the use of the transfer portal and the direction the sport's going in. So things are only going to get tougher for David Shaw. Long answer short, shorter, I'll say Scott Frost at Nebraska. We talked about this the other day. Nebraska had a positive point differential last year despite going 3-9. and nine. Of their nine losses, eight were by one score. All nine were by single digits, and that includes games against six ranked teams. I think Nebraska will be much better. Scott Frost coaching for his job. I think they'll have a winning record this year, go to a bowl game, and be much improved. So of those coaches, all maybe coaching for their job, I think Scott Frost will have the best year of those four. And, Luke, final one here. Who will have the better year, Michigan State or Michigan? I have concerns with both teams. Um... I've been saying all offseason, I think Michigan will take a step back this year, a la Florida, a year ago. And I've given my reasons why, right? I mean, they overachieved a year ago. Maybe they regressed to the mean. They lost their best players in the draft like Florida did. Uh, Harbaugh got a little big for his britches, thought he was onto greener pastures like Dan Mullen. Didn't quite work out. And Harbaugh lost both coordinators, including the defensive coordinator, and they were led by their defense last year. So I'm down on Michigan. Now, when it comes to Michigan State, I think Michigan State's an interesting case study. And now we have a little bit more of this in college football this year. Ole Miss replenished their roster with the transfer portal. USC, new coaching staff came in, filled their roster with the transfer portal. I'm curious to see, and it's probably going to be a yes, but how sustainable of a model this is long-term. 
Can you continue to just build through the transfer portal every year? It worked well for Mel Tucker last year. Are they going to regress to the mean this year, or is Michigan State under Mel Tucker kind of here to stay? To answer the question, I think Michigan State will have um, the better year. I have questions about both, but I think Michigan State has the better quarterback, uh, and I think Michigan, I've issued my concerns that I'm more concerned. There's more concerns about Michigan than Michigan State. Michigan State lost their star running back. The question is, you know, can they repeat what they did last year, or is that kind of them overachieving? But they have the better quarterback. they got a good coach. I'll say Michigan State has a better year than Michigan. And when you look at, again, just going back to Vegas, Michigan State has a win total of 7.5, Michigan 9.5. I could see Michigan winning. I put them around 8-4 and four this year. And quite frankly, I could see things going really south and Michigan being like 7-5, and five, being a huge disappointment this year, kind of like Florida a year ago. Michigan State, their win total is 7.5. I could see them exceeding that. I could, put, I could see Michigan winning 8, Michigan State maybe getting back to 9 games like they did a year ago. But I think Michigan State will have the better year. Speaking of uh, win totals and gambling odds, Utah's win total is only 8.5. Whoa. I may have to hammer the over. You might be one of the only guys in the South right now that thinks Utah could potentially be a top-five team. <laughs> That's true. I don't know how many people are even paying attention to the Pac-12, <laughs> unless it's Lincoln Riley. I don't know if I'd put – I was thinking about this the other day, driving around. I was thinking of playoff teams already for next year. And I hate going chalk, but most people in college football probably have a clear three, or at least two, Alabama, Ohio State, and then maybe you think you know the SEC will probably get two teams. It'll be Georgia. Those are the three favorites. Clemson is then the fourth favorite. I'm not as high on Clemson as maybe most people are. I don't know. I'm not. So I was thinking about who's that fourth team? Is it going to be from the Big 12, the Pac-12, the ACC? I don't know. Maybe it is Utah. Maybe I am bold enough to say Utah wins the Pac-12 and they go into the playoff this year. But I was trying to think of that fourth team as kind of like a wild card. Is it going to be Oklahoma? Is it going to be Texas somehow? Is it going to be a Clemson or somebody from the ACC, a Miami, or is it a Utah? I don't really know. I don't have a good answer for that fourth team. Everybody, most people are probably say Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, and then the real question is who is everybody's fourth team for the playoff? Trent, if I were to put you on the spot here in June, who do you see as maybe uh, the top tier of college football this year? Uh, I mean, you know I'm relatively high on Southern Cal, so I'm going to have to give them a look to be that True. fourth team. I feel like the, the stars are aligning for them. I, I love the roster that they've put together, so I'd probably say Southern Cal. I'm not counting Oregon out, definitely not. Dan Lanning's a good coach. But, man, it's just everybody wants parity. But once at the end of the day, once you get to that top four, it's the same four yeah. schools, same five schools every single time. And there's about two or three that are always going to come out on top, always, and that being Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. Yeah, the thing I always say, Phil Steele, who we have on the show every year when he comes out with his magazine, and it's going to be coming out, I think, uh, July 4th. So in the next few weeks, it's always an exciting time. Phil likes to brag that his he puts out his top 25. I think he's already done it. He has like a 90% success rate. And Phil is the best at analyzing college football and predicting college football from a like an analytical standpoint and everything. But I'll also say, while Phil likes to take credit for that, it just speaks to how predictable college football is. That I think a lot of people that are as locked into the sport as Phil are can put together a top 25 that will also hit at a 90% rate because we know every year who the, who the teams are going to be. Now, last year was the most unpredictable year we've had in quite some time in college football. Maybe this year will be something similar. 
But I guess we're both in the same wavelength looking to the Pac-12. You think USC? Uh, I'm leaning. I'm not going to give you a solid opinion that I take Utah as a playoff team, but I am leaning in that direction. But maybe it's the Pac-12 that fills that fourth spot. Yeah, I just don't think that this year, uh, you know, Michigan, if they're trying to repeat against Ohio State, I don't think it will happen. Uh, I really don't. C.J. Stroud's much improved the team, even though they lost a couple good pieces. Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, they reloaded with Jackson Smith and Jigba and uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. So, uh, I mean, this team's all the way back looking to go, and I don't. I see them blowing out Michigan this year the way they did Michigan State last year. Yeah, probably. I mean, Ohio State had the best offense in the country statistically last year. I think they'll be even better offensively this year. People are talking about how they could have uh, the best quarterback, running back, and wide receiver in the country potentially. So, yeah, Ohio State, uh, I like them a lot in the Big Ten. Hey, when we come back, the Live Golf Tour is continuing on. Uh, I had another thought about that whole thing. Last night, and I think in this whole golf situation with Live Golf Tour coming about, I think the only people winning are the golfers getting the guaranteed contracts from Live Golf. I think the sport is hurting. I think the PGA Tour suffers from this. I think the fans suffer from this, and I'll explain why when we come back. It's more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show at Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. I had another thought about the whole golf world. I think uh, all of this, none, none of this is good for the golf world or the fans of the game. The only people coming out on top of this are um, the golfers getting these big contracts. And then maybe if you want to say the Saudi Arabians for being able to sports wash things, as they say, that new term that's being thrown around. But I saw this online. There's a, a new Coke. Coca-Cola. Okay. That's uh, trending. It's like a TikTok thing. It's supposed to be a healthy version. So yesterday we talked about mayonnaise in the coffee. What about this one? People Mm. apparently are mixing balsamic vinegar and sparkling water. All right. What do we? And they say it tastes just like Coke, like Coca-Cola, but it's a lot healthier for you. And it's become a TikTok trend. Well, we, I mean, we might need to pass this along to the gentleman who hosts the uh, 3 to 6 show, uh, you know, if he wants to try an alternative for uh, the Coca-Colas, because he does <laughs> slam a good bit, That's you true. know, every so often. But, you know, Luke, this is just another thing. People are just, I, I don't know. I will not try this. No? You know, actually, what we should do is we should do a taste test live on air. I, yeah. I think we'll get some we'll get some Petier water, if you will, and uh, we'll pour. Is it no flavored uh, sparkling water? It's just, you know, tonic? I think, I think so. I think it's just regular sparkling water. So we'd go get some San Pellegrinos, and mm. uh, and we'll put some balsamic vinegar in it. I mean, this, is, this isn't good, Luke. I am intrigued because I am somebody, I do enjoy a nice soda, but I've had to cut it out. It's terrible for you. One of the worst. Oh, it's awful. All that sugar and everything. Um, so when I got into a little bit of a health kick a year ago, I said, okay, no more soda. I was drinking way too much soda. So I am intrigued because I still love the flavor of soda. So if you're telling me this is a healthy alternative, I'm at least willing to give it a try. Now, what would you rather 
have a taste of either the uh, the new Coke, the healthy Coke, or the coffee with the mayonnaise in it. Uh, you know, the coffee with the mayonnaise. I will live. Will Levis seems like a great guy, and I appreciate what he does for the sport. But I'm completely, like you said, I'm completely out on him. If I was a GM, I would not be drafting a gentleman who puts mayonnaise in his coffee. I would rather uh, probably try the alternative Coke just to see how it tastes. Because you're right, I I, I enjoy a crisp soda, you know, mm-hmm. on a hot afternoon. If oh, yeah. so, but I don't drink them because they're loaded with sugar and a bunch of bad stuff for you. So, yeah, I'd probably do the Coke, Luke. We, we're going to have to do this. Maybe it's a movie Monday and a taste test Monday. <laughs> that's that's true. Taste test Tuesday. Ta- All about that alliteration. There it is. There it is. Let's just uh, We'll try to keep it from becoming a bit, though, because I don't want to be having <laughs> nasty things every week. But I'm interested to try this. Are you a sparkling water guy? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I am. I won't be that guy, though, when they, you know, at a nice restaurant, when they come over, they say, you know, still or yeah. sparkling. I, I, w- I want to say sparkling to be that guy, but I'm never mm. that guy. So I just say, give me a tap and, you know, if a steakhouse glass of red wine, please, your cheapest one, because I can't tell <laughs> That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Always go with the house. <laughs> um, I'm not a sparkling. I had a buddy growing up. Their family was huge. They, like, only drink sparkling water. Mm. Not a big guy, but I'll tell you what. Growing up in my family, my grandfather used to have the fridge in the garage filled with frescas. Ooh. Now, that's a soda, but it's it's called the sparkling flavored soda. I love a good fresca. Absolutely. Undefeated. Yes. As a child, you know, playing oh. in the yard, you go pop a fresca while you're playing some basketball. Absolutely. I haven't had a fresca in a long time. Add that to the list. Yes. And that, by the way, they say that has, like, no calories, no sugar, and it, I think it tastes good. It's It's like a... That's supposed to be a healthy soda because it's really it's a sparkling flavored soda. Uh, so a fresca, I guess that's the closest thing I get. I'm not a sparkling water guy, but I'll I'll knock down a few frescas, no problem. Is there any like uh, uh, bad effects? Not like you know soda, you know a Coke. There's a lot of bad effects that come with it, like the sugar and everything. With sparkling water, right? It's not like I drink a Lacroix every so often. Yeah, I mean, uh, you yeah. call me bougie, but I'll drink yes. a Lacroix. You know the plum one is absolutely fantastic. But it has no sugar, no calories, no you know carbs or nothing. Yeah, it's true. That's why you know I, a lot of times I have no problem drinking water, but sometimes I'll mix it up. I'll do a little Propel, mm. do a little flavored water, because I get it. Right, water can get a little boring after a while. You want a little flavor, but you don't want to get all the sugar of a soda or even a juice. So I'll do a little Propel. But yeah, the idea is that these things, it's just uh, the same idea as water, just a little flavored, like a like a Propel is supposed to be. Although I, I think uh, I think there's some salt in there. Or, or just it's um, uh, sodium. But anyways, point being, yeah, I think these things are supposed to be still healthy alternatives. Wouldn't, like, the balsamic vinegar, like, that's got to have some sodium in it, no? Like, I guess it's still better than uh, all the sugar they pour into it. Well, yeah, people use Coca-Cola. Uh, Coca-Cola, like flat Coca-Cola, to drain their drains. Like, that's a real thing. One time I had a situation. I was out with my car. I had a problem with the battery of mm-hmm. the car where it um, – uh, what's the term I'm looking for? It was kind of like pouring out of the battery. Ooh, okay. Uh, I can't think of the term off the top of my head, but you know what I'm talking about. Anyways, I happened to have a leftover cup of Coke from a fast food restaurant in the car from like the day prior. Mm. And sure enough, I had a rag in my car, put the Coke on it, clean the battery. We're good to go. Wow. Use the Coke to fix uh, the issue. And folks, you're putting that substance yeah, you're putting in, it in your body. body. <laughs> it cleaned off the battery in my car of whatever... Whatever that is that pours out of the battery when the battery there's an issue with your battery, and I can't think of the word right now off the top of my head, um, but then there's that, that foamy liquid. that And, yeah, I used Coca-Cola, cleaned it right off, 
Got me where I had to go before I needed to replace the battery. Yeah, if you got to clean your shower drain, you just get a two-liter bottle of Coke, and it'll probably take majority of the bottle, but that thing is crystal clear uh, after after it's done. There's videos online you can watch of people putting things in a cup of Coke, and it just, like, it disintegrates, yeah. right? Like, crazy things that you never think of. So, anyways, and I look, I love soda, so I'm just as guilty. But, yeah, it is wild that we uh, we put that in our bodies with really how terrible it is for you. Yeah. So, if you're giving me a healthy alternative, we may have to try it on the show next week. Uh, real quick, when it comes to the um, live golf and everything, as I said, I think everyone's losing in this except the guys getting the money. The problem is I think more will move over to the live golf tour, so then the PGA tour will become watered down. The live golf then now what you have is you're going to have a mix of both, right? Like in the live golf tour, they're using 48 golfers in each of these events. Only 17 came from the PGA tour, so you still have a lot of no name golfers in these events that aren't necessarily professional quality. Then you're going to take away some golfers from the PGA Tour. It's going to water it down where now you're going to have more golfers in the PGA Tour that suddenly a spot's open for them that don't necessarily, they're not talented enough to uh, be the traditional golfer on that tour. There's an old expression, or, or really it's, a, it's one of those laws. It's Gresham's Law. that uh, it's, it, The idea is bad money drives out good money. And you could say in this situation, which one's the bad money? Right? You could say the Saudi Arabian, it, bad money drives out good money. So the Live Golf Tour could really put a dent into the PGA Tour as you know it. Here's my concern. As a golf fan, I always say competition's the best thing for anything, for sports, for anything in life. For your, if you're a boss, your company, right, you want to create competition, so you make sure everybody is working hard. Problem becomes, you know, when Dustin Johnson shanks a shot, he's getting $150 million guaranteed just to be there. And if everybody, everyone gets paid just for being there, even if you finish in last place. My concern in all this is once you get to guaranteed money, do these golfers really care? And the more golfers go to the Live Golf Tour, it's going to water down both events. And then if you try to tune into the Live Golf Tour, right, if you're a golf fan thinking, hey, at least we get more golf now, and competition's a good thing, yeah, but that competition, Phil Mickelson, regardless of how he does on the course, is getting over $200 million just to begin with. What is his motivation to go out there and actually play well or care, actually try? He could finish in last and still walk away with 120000 for three days' work. That's pretty good while getting $200 million up front. And it's the old classic uh, Marvin uh, Hagler line, you know, who's the boxer, and he said it's hard to wake up and train at 6 a.m. when you're sleeping in silk sheets. And it's similar here. These guys, they're set now. Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, DeChambeau, all these other guys making the – so what is their motivation, right? At least on the PGA Tour, you have to play well to get the big payday. So you want to go out there and make sure you're giving it your all. On the Live Golf Tour, you already got paid. It's why in the NBA teams will tank and guys will set out games. Guaranteed contracts. Whether they're playing or not, doesn't matter. Uh, they obviously want to go win championships, but, hey, you know, they, they're making their millions regardless. Major League Baseball, similar idea. The NFL, there is no tanking, and guys want to be out there, and they'll play through injuries. Why? Because the contracts are not guaranteed. If you're working on commission, you're going to go out there and hustle more than the salesman who just has a higher base salary, and he can support his family even if he's not making a ton of sales. Similar here. One of the things I thought the PGA Tour, people will complain, right? Oh, these guys, they're not making enough money. I always like the idea of being uh, incentive-driven, that you have to go play well if you want to make big money, right? You're motivated to make sure you're in uh, tip-top shape. You're playing your best so that you can get the big payday. Live Golf Tour, they're just handing out the big paydays. doesn't matter what you do out there on the course. You're going home with tons of money. And I think the product suffers. It's going to make the PGA Tour suffer. And then I think you, the golf fan at home, is going to suffer because – now the golf's watered down on both quote-unquote tours, and on the Live Golf Tour where they're stealing some of these big names, the guys just simply may not care anymore. As they say, bad money drives out good, 
And uh, I think the bad money of the Lip Golf Tour is really going to put a dent into the quote-unquote good money of the PGA Tour, if you will. The bad versus, versus good in this situation. And I think a golf fan should be concerned about the future of uh, the sport they may love. We'll wrap up your Friday next. It's more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Wrapping up your Friday on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch you on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. And take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com, through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker, or our free app. Search ESPN Charleston in the App Store and download the free app today. And that allows you to listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. The podcasts are available there. Appreciate listeners checking in from at least 12 different states and multiple countries on this Friday. ESPN Charleston in the App Store. Don't forget about the Summer Golf Tour continuing Monday morning, 8 a.m. The next round of foursomes go on sale at charlestonsportsradio.com. Get yours before they sell out. They always do very quickly. Game four of the NBA Finals tonight. We're on the Warriors in these parts. I think they even up the series. Real quick, Trent, what were those uh, those props? Uh, Steph Curry over four and a half threes. Uh, Andrew Wiggins over 16 and a half points. Book it. Let's see how we do tonight. Whatever happens, we'll be back on Monday to break it all down. If you ever miss anything of the show, catch you on the man. In the meantime, life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again Monday at noon. The more Midday Show on ESPN Radio.